Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Chapter 36 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 36 Chesney Wold. Charlie and I did not set off alone upon our expedition into Lincolnshire. My guardian had made up his mind not to lose sight of me until I was safe in Mr. Boythorn's house. So he accompanied us, and we were two days upon the road. I found every breath of air, and every scent, and every flower and leaf and blade of grass, and every passing cloud, and everything in nature, more beautiful and wonderful to me than I had ever found it yet. This was my first gain from my illness. How little I had lost, when the wide world was so full of delight for me! My guardian intending to go back immediately, we appointed, on our way down, a day when my dear girl should come. I wrote her a letter, of which he took charge, and he left us within half an hour of our arrival at our destination, on a delightful evening in the early summer-time. If a good fairy had built the house for me with a wave of her wand, and I had been a princess and her favoured godchild, I could not have been more considered in it. So many preparations were made for me, and such an endearing remembrance was shown of all my little tastes and likings, that I could have sat down, overcome, a dozen times, before I had revisited half the rooms. I did better than that, however, by showing them all to Charlie instead. Charlie's delight calmed mine, and after we had had a walk in the garden, and Charlie had exhausted her whole vocabulary of admiring expressions, I was as tranquilly happy as I ought to have been. It was a great comfort to be able to say to myself after tea, "'Esther, my dear, I think you are quite sensible enough to sit down now, and write a note of thanks to your host.' He had left a note of welcome for me, as sunny as his own face, and had confided his bird to my care, which I knew to be his highest mark of confidence. Accordingly, I wrote a little note to him in London, telling him how all his favourite plants and trees were looking, and how the most astonishing of birds had chirped the honours of the house to me in the most hospitable manner, and how, after singing on my shoulder, to the inconceivable rapture of my little maid, he was then at roost in the usual corner of his cage, but whether dreaming or no, I could not report. My note finished and sent off to the post, I made myself very busy in unpacking and arranging and I sent Charlie to bed in good time, and told her I should want her no more that night. For I had not yet looked in the glass, and had never asked to have my own restored to me. I knew this to be a weakness which must be overcome, but I had always said to myself that I would begin afresh when I got to where I now was. 
Therefore I had wanted to be alone, and therefore I said, Now alone in my own room, Esther, if you are to be happy, if you are to have any right to pray to be true-hearted, you must keep your word, my dear. I was quite resolved to keep it, but I sat down for a little while first to reflect upon all my blessings, and then I said my prayers, and thought a little more. My hair had not been cut off, though it had been in danger more than once. It was long and thick. I let it down, and shook it out, and went up to the glass upon the dressing-table. There was a little muslin curtain drawn across it. I drew it back, and stood for a moment looking through such a veil of my own hair that I could see nothing else. Then I put my hair aside, and looked at the reflection in the mirror, encouraged by seeing how placidly it looked at me. I was very much changed. Oh, very, very much. At first my face was so strange to me that I think I should have put my hands before it and started back, but for the encouragement I have mentioned. Very soon it became more familiar, and then I knew the extent of the alteration in it better than I had done at first. It was not like what I had expected, but I had expected nothing definite, and I dare say anything definite would have surprised me. I had never been a beauty, and had never thought myself one, but I had been very different from this. It was all gone now. Heaven was so good to me that I could let it go with a few not bitter tears, and could stand there arranging my hair for the night, quite thankfully. One thing troubled me, and I considered it for a long time before I went to sleep. I had kept Mr. Woodcourt's flowers. When they were withered, I had dried them, and put them in a book that I was fond of. Nobody knew this, not even Ada. I was doubtful whether I had a right to preserve what he had sent to one so different, whether it was generous towards him to do it. I wished to be generous to him, even in the secret depths of my heart, which he would never know, because I could have loved him, could have been devoted to him. At last I came to the conclusion that I might keep them, if I treasured them, only as a remembrance of what was irrevocably past and gone, never to be looked back on any more, in any other light. I hope this may not seem trivial. I was very much in earnest. I took care to be up early in the morning, and to be before the glass when Charlie came in on tiptoe. Oh, "'Dear, dear miss!' cried Charlie, starting. "'Is that you?' "'Yes, Charlie,' said I, quietly putting up my hair, "'and I am very well indeed, and very happy.' I saw it was a weight off Charlie's mind, but it was a greater weight off mine. I knew the worst now, and was composed to it. I shall not conceal, as I go on, the weaknesses I could not quite conquer, but they always passed from me soon, and the happier frame of mind stayed by me faithfully. Wishing to be fully re-established in my strength, and in my good spirits before Ada came, I now laid down a little series of plans with Charlie for being in the fresh air all day long. We were to be out before breakfast, and were to dine early, and were to be out again before and after dinner, and were to talk in the garden after tea, and were to go to rest betimes, and were to climb every hill, and explore every road, lane, and field in the neighbourhood. As to restoratives, and strengthening delicacies, 
Mr. Boythorn's good housekeeper was for ever trotting about with something to eat or drink in her hand. I could not even be heard of as resting in the park, but she would come trotting after me with a basket, her cheerful face shining with a lecture on the importance of frequent nourishment. Then there was a pony, expressly for my riding, a chubby pony with a short neck and a mane all over his eyes, who could canter, when he would, so easily and quietly that he was a treasure. In a very few days he would come to me in the paddock when I called him, and eat out of my hand, and follow me about. We arrived at such a capital understanding that when he was jogging with me lazily and rather obstinately down some shady lane, if I patted his neck and said, "'Stubbs, I'm surprised you don't canter when you know how much I like it, and I think you might oblige me, for you're only getting stupid and going to sleep,' he would give his head a comical shake or two, and set off directly, while Charlie would stand still and laugh with such enjoyment that her laughter was like music. I don't know who had given Stubbs his name, but it seemed to belong to him as naturally as his rough coat. Once we put him in a little chaise, and drove him triumphantly through the green lanes for five miles, but all at once, as we were extolling him to the skies, he seemed to take it ill that he should have been accompanied so far by the circle of tantalizing little gnats that had been hovering around and round his ears the whole way, without appearing to advance an inch, and stopped to think about it. I suppose he came to the decision that it was not to be borne, for he steadily refused to move, until I gave the reins to Charlie, and got out and walked, when he followed me with a sturdy sort of good humour, putting his head under my arm and rubbing his ear against my sleeve. It was in vain for me to say, "'Now, Stubbs, I feel quite sure from what I know of you that you will go on if I ride a little while.' For the moment I left him, he stood stock-still again. Consequently, I was obliged to lead the way as before, and in this order we returned home to the great delight of the village. Charlie and I had reason to call it the most friendly of villagers. I am sure— for in a week's time the people were so glad to see us go by, though ever so frequently in the course of a day, that there were faces of greeting in every cottage. I had known many of the grown people before, and almost all the children, but now the very steeple began to wear a familiar and affectionate look. Among my new friends was an old, old woman, who lived in such a little thatched and whitewashed dwelling, that when the outside shutter was turned up on its hinges, it shut up the whole house-front. This old lady had a grandson, who was a sailor, and I wrote a letter to him for her, and drew at the top of it the chimney-corner in which she had brought him up, and where his old stool yet occupied its old place. This was considered by the whole village the most wonderful achievement in the world, but when an answer came back all the way from Plymouth, in which he mentioned that he was going to take the picture all the way to America, and from America would write again, I got all the credit that ought to have been given to the post-office, and was invested with the merit of the whole system. Thus, what with being so much in the air, playing with so many children, gossiping with so many people, sitting on invitation in so many cottages, going on with Charlie's education, and writing long letters to Ada every day, I had scarcely any time to think about that little loss of mine, and was almost always cheerful. If I did think of it at odd moments, now and then, I had only to be busy and forget it. I felt it more than I had hoped I should, once when a little child said, "'Mother, 
why is the lady not a pretty lady now like she used to be but when i found the child was not less fond of me and drew its soft hand over my face with a kind of pitying protection in its touch that soon set me up again there were many little occurrences which suggested to me with great consolation how natural it is to gentle hearts to be considerate and delicate towards any inferiority one of these particularly touched me i happened to stroll into the little church when a marriage was just concluded and the young couple had to sign the register the bridegroom to whom the pen was handed first made a rude cross for his mark the bride who came next did the same now i had known the bride when i was last there not only as the prettiest girl in the place but as having quite distinguished herself in the school and i could not help looking at her with some surprise she came aside and whispered to me while tears of honest love and admiration stood in her bright eyes he's a dear good fellow miss but he can't write yet he's going to learn of me and i wouldn't shame him for the world why what had i to fear i thought when there was this nobility in the soul of a labouring man's daughter the air blew as freshly and revivingly upon me as it had ever blown and the healthy colour came into my new face as it had come into my old one charlie was wonderful to see she was so radiant and so rosy and we both enjoyed the whole day and slept soundly the whole night there was a favourite spot of mine in the park woods of chesney wold where a seat had been erected commanding a lovely view the wood had been cleared and opened to improve this point of sight and the bright sunny landscape beyond was so beautiful that i rested there at least once every day a picturesque part of the hall called the ghost's walk was seen to advantage from this higher ground and the startling name and the old legend in the dedlock family which i had heard from mr boythorn accounting for it mingled with the view and gave it something of a mysterious interest in addition to its real charms there was a bank here too which was a famous one for violets and as it was a daily delight of charlie's to gather wild flowers she took as much to the spot as i did it would be idle to inquire now why i never went close to the house or never went inside it the family were not there i had heard on my arrival and were not expected i was far from being incurious or uninterested about the building on the contrary i often sat in this place wondering how the rooms ranged and whether any echo like a footstep really did resound at times as the story said upon the lonely ghost walk the indefinable feeling with which lady dudluck had impressed me may have had some influence in keeping me from the house even when she was absent I i'm not sure her face and figure were associated with it naturally but i cannot say that they repelled me from it though something did for whatever reason or no reason i had never once gone near it down to the day at which my story now arrives i was resting at my favourite point after a long ramble and charlie was gathering violets at a little distance from me i had been looking at the ghost's walk lying in a deep shade of masonry afar off and picturing to myself the female shape that was said to haunt it when i became aware of a figure approaching through the wood the perspective was so long and so darkened by leaves and the shadows of the branches on the ground made it so much more intricate to the eye 
that at first I could not discern what figure it was. By little and little it revealed itself to be a woman's, a lady's, Lady Dedlock's. She was alone, and coming to where I sat, with a much quicker step, I observed to my surprise, than was usual with her. I was fluttered by her being unexpectedly so near. She was almost within speaking distance before I knew her, and would have risen to continue my walk. But I could not. I was rendered motionless. Not so much by her hurried gesture of entreaty, not so much by her quick advance and outstretched hands, not so much by the great change in her manner and the absence of her haughty self-restraint, as by a something in her face that I had pined for and dreamed of when I was a little child, something I had never seen in any face, something I had never seen in hers before. Her dread and faintness fell upon me and I called to Charlie. Lady Dedlock stopped upon the instant, and changed back almost to what I had known her. "'Miss Summerson, I am afraid I have startled you,' she said, now advancing slowly. "'You can scarcely be strong yet. You have been very ill, I know. I have been much concerned to hear it.' I could no more have removed my eyes from her pale face than I could have stirred from the bench on which I sat. She gave me her hand, and its deadly coldness, so at variance with the enforced composure of her features, deepened the fascination that overpowered me. I cannot say what was in my whirling thoughts. "'You are recovering again?' she asked kindly. "'I was quite well but a moment ago, Lady Dedlock.' "'Is this your young attendant?' Yes. Will you send her on before, and walk towards your house with me? Charlie, said I, take your flowers home, and I will follow you directly. Charlie, with her best curtsy, blushingly tied on her bonnet, and went her way. When she was gone, Lady Dudlock sat down on the seat beside me. I cannot tell in any words— what the state of my mind was when I saw in her hand my handkerchief, with which I had covered the dead baby. I looked at her, but I could not see her. I could not hear her. I could not draw my breath. The beating of my heart was so violent and wild that I felt as if my life were breaking from me. But when she caught me to her breast, kissed me, wept over me, compassionated me, and called me back to myself, when she fell down on her knees and cried to me, "'Oh, my child, my child, I am your wicked and unhappy mother. Oh, try to forgive me.' When I saw her at my feet on the bare earth, in her great agony of mind, I felt, through all my tumult of emotion, a burst of gratitude to the providence of God, that I was so changed, as that I never could disgrace her by any trace of likeness, as that nobody could ever now look at me, and look at her, and remotely think of any near tie between us. I raised my mother up, praying and beseeching her not to stoop before me in such affliction and humiliation. I did so in broken, incoherent words, for besides the trouble I was in, it frightened me to see her at my feet. I told her, or I tried to tell her, 
that if it were for me her child under any circumstances to take upon me to forgive her i did it and had done it many many years ago i told her that my heart overflowed with love for her that it was natural love which nothing in the past had changed or could change that it was not for me then resting for the first time on my mother's bosom to take her to account for having given me life but that my duty was to bless her and receive her though the whole world turned from her and that i only asked her leave to do it i held my mother in my embrace and she held me in hers and among the still woods in the silence of the summer day there seemed to be nothing but our two troubled minds that was not at peace to bless and receive me groaned my mother it is far too late i must travel my dark road alone and it will lead me where it will from day to day sometimes from hour to hour i do not see the way before my guilty feet this is the earthly punishment i have brought upon myself i bear it and i hide it even in the thinking of her endurance she drew her habitual air of proud indifference about her like a veil though she soon cast it off again i must keep this secret if by any means it can be kept not wholly for myself i have a husband wretched and dishonouring creature that i am these words she uttered with a suppressed cry of despair more terrible in its sound than any shriek covering her face with her hands she shrank down in my embrace as if she were unwilling that i should touch her nor could i by my utmost persuasions or by any endearments i could use prevail upon her to rise she said no 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 she could only speak to me so she must be proud and disdainful everywhere else she would be humbled and ashamed there in the only natural moments of her life my unhappy mother told me that in my illness she had been nearly frantic she had but then known that her child was living she could not have suspected me to be that child before she had followed me down here to speak to me but once in all her life we never could associate never could communicate never probably from that time forth could interchange another word on earth she put into my hands a letter she had written for my reading only and said when i had read it and destroyed it but not so much for her sake since she asked nothing as for her husband's and my own i must evermore consider her as dead if i could believe that she loved me in this agony in which i saw her with a mother's love she asked me to do that for then i might think of her with a greater pity imagining what she suffered she had put herself beyond all hope and beyond all help whether she preserved her secret until death or it came to be discovered and she brought dishonour and disgrace upon the name she had taken it was her solitary struggle always and no affection 
could come near her, and no human creature could render her any aid. "'But is the secret safe so far?' I asked. "'Is it safe now, dearest mother?' "'No,' replied my mother. "'It has been very near discovery. It was saved by an accident. It may be lost by another accident. Tomorrow, any day.' "'Do you dread a particular person?' "'Do not tremble and cry so much for me. I am not worthy of these tears,' said my mother, kissing my hands. "'I dread one person very much.' "'An enemy?' "'Not a friend. One who is too passionless to be either. He is Sir Lester Dedlock's lawyer, mechanically faithful, without attachment.' and very jealous of the profit, privilege, and reputation of being master of the mysteries of great houses. "'Has he any suspicions?' "'Many.' "'Not of you,' I said, alarmed. "'Yes. He is always vigilant, and always near me. I may keep him at a standstill, but I can never shake him off.' "'Has he so little pity or compunction?' "'He has none, and no anger. "'He is indifferent to everything but his calling. "'His calling is the acquisition of secrets, "'and the holding possession of such power as they give him, "'with no sharer or opponent in it.' "'Could you trust in him?' "'I shall never try. "'The dark road I have trodden for so many years.' will end where it will. I follow it alone to the end, whatever the end be. It may be near, it may be distant. While the road lasts, nothing turns me. Dear mother, are you so resolved? I am resolved. I have long outbidden folly with folly, pride with pride, scorn with scorn, insolence with insolence, and have outlived many vanities with many more. I will outlive this danger, and outdie it, if I can. It has closed around me almost as awfully as if these woods of Chesney Wold had closed around the house. But my course through it is the same. I have but one. I can have but one. "'Mr. Jarndyce,' I was beginning, when my mother hurriedly inquired, "'Does he suspect?' "'No,' said I, "'no, indeed. Be assured that he does not.' And I told her what he had related to me as his knowledge of my story. "'But he is so good and sensible,' said I, "'that perhaps if he knew—' My mother, who until this time had made no change in her position— raised her hand up to my lips, and stopped me. "'Confide fully in him,' she said after a little while. "'You have my free consent. A small gift from such a mother to her injured child. But do not tell me of it. Some pride is left in me, even yet.' I explained, as nearly as I could then, or can recall now, 
for my agitation and distress throughout were so great that I scarcely understood myself, though every word that was uttered in the mother's voice, so unfamiliar and so melancholy to me, which in my childhood I had never learned to love and recognised, had never been sung to sleep with, had never heard a blessing from, had never had a hope inspired by, made an enduring impression on my memory. I say I explained, or tried to do it, how I had only hoped that Mr. Jarndyce, who had been the best of fathers to me, might be able to afford some counsel and support to her. But my mother answered no. It was impossible. No one could help her. Through the desert that lay before her, she must go alone. "'My child, my child,' she said, "'for the last time. These kisses for the last time. These arms upon my neck for the last time. We shall meet no more. To hope to do what I seek to do, I must be what I have been so long. Such is my reward and doom. If you hear of Lady Dedlock, brilliant, prosperous, and flattered, think of your wretched mother, conscience-stricken underneath that mask. Think that the reality is in her suffering, in her useless remorse, in her murdering within her breast the only love and truth of which it is capable. And then forgive her, if you can, and cry to heaven to forgive her, which it never can. We held one another for a little space yet, but she was so firm that she took my hands away and put them back against my breast, and with a last kiss as she held them there, released me and went from me into the wood. I was alone and calm and quiet below me in the sun and shade lay the old house, with its terraces and turrets, on which there had seemed to me to be such complete repose when I first saw it, but which now looked like the obdurate and unpitying watcher of my mother's misery. Stunned as I was, as weak and helpless at first as I had ever been in my sick chamber, the necessity of guarding against the danger of discovery, or even of the remotest suspicion, did me service. I took such precautions as I could to hide from Charlie that I had been crying, and I constrained myself to think of every sacred obligation that there was upon me to be careful and collected. It was not a little while before I could succeed, or could even restrain bursts of grief. But after an hour or so, I was better, and felt that I might return. I went home very slowly, and told Charlie, whom I found at the gate looking for me, that I had been tempted to extend my walk after Lady Dedlock had left me, and that I was overtired and would lie down. Safe in my own room, I read the letter. I clearly derived from it, and that was much then, that I had not been abandoned by my mother. Her elder and only sister, the godmother of my childhood, discovering signs of life in me when I had been laid aside as dead, had in her stern sense of duty, with no desire or willingness that I should live, 
reared me in rigid secrecy, and had never again beheld my mother's face from within a few hours of my birth. So strangely did I hold my place in this world, that until within a short time back I had never, to my own mother's knowledge, breathed, had been buried, had never been endowed with life, had never borne a name. When she had first seen me in the church, she had been startled, and had thought of what would have been like me, if it had ever lived, and had lived on. But that was all, then. What more the letter told me needs not to be repeated here. It has its own times and places in my story. My first care was to burn what my mother had written, and to consume even its ashes. I hope it may not appear very unnatural or bad in me that I then became heavily sorrowful to think I had ever been reared, that I felt as if I knew it would have been better and happier for many people if, indeed, I had never breathed, that I had a terror of myself as the danger and the possible disgrace of my own mother and of a proud family name, that I was so confused and shaken as to be possessed by a belief that it was right and had been intended that I should die in my birth, and that it was wrong and not intended that I should be then alive. These are the real feelings that I had. I fell asleep worn out, and when I awoke I cried afresh to think that I was back in the world with my load of trouble for others. I was more than ever frightened of myself, thinking anew of her against whom I was a witness of the owner of Chesney Wold, of the new and terrible meaning of the old words, now moaning in my ear like a surge upon the shore. "'Your mother, Esther,' was your disgrace, and you are hers. The time will come, and soon enough, when you will understand this better, and will feel it too, as no one save a woman can." With them these other words returned, "'Pray daily that the sins of others be not visited upon your head.' I could not disentangle all that was about me, and I felt as if the blame and the shame were all in me and the visitation had come down. The day waned into a gloomy evening, overcast and sad, and I still contended with the same distress. I went out alone, and after walking a little in the park, watching the dark shades falling on the trees, and the fitful flight of the bats, which sometimes almost touched me, was attracted to the house for the first time. Perhaps I might not have gone near it, if I had been in a stronger frame of mind, as it was, I took the path that led close by it. I did not dare to linger or to look up, but I passed before the terrace garden with its fragrant odours, and its broad walks, and its well-kept beds and smooth turf, and I saw how beautiful and grave it was, and how the old stone balustrades and parapets, and wide flights of shallow steps, were seamed by time and weather, and how the trained moss and ivy grew about them and around the old stone pedestal of the sundial, and I heard the fountain falling. Then away went by long lines of dark windows, diversified by turreted towers, and porches of eccentric shapes, where old stone lions and grotesque monsters bristled outside dens of shadow and snarled at the evening gloom over the escutcheons they held in their grip. Thence the path wound underneath a gateway, and through a courtyard, where the principal entrance was, I hurried quickly on. And by the stables, where none but deep voices seemed to be, 
whether in the murmurings of the wind through the strong mass of ivy holding to a high red wall, or in the low complaining of the weathercock, or in the barking of the dogs, or in the slow striking of a clock. So, encountering presently a sweet smell of limes, whose rustling I could hear, I turned with the turning of the path to the south front, and there above me were the balustrades of the ghost's walk, and one lighted window that might be my mother's. The way was paved here like the terrace overhead, and my footsteps from being noiseless made an echoing sound upon the flags. Stopping to look at nothing, but seeing all I did see as I went, I was passing quickly on, and in a few moments should have passed the lighted window, when my echoing footsteps brought it suddenly into my mind that there was a dreadful truth in the legend of the ghost's walk that it was I who was to bring calamity upon the stately house, and that my warning feet were haunting it even then. Seized with an augmented terror of myself, which turned me cold, I ran for myself, and everything, retraced the way by which I had come, and never paused, until I gained the lodge-gate, and the park lay sullen and black behind me. Not before I was alone in my own room for the night, and had again been dejected and unhappy there, did I begin to know how wrong and thankless this state was. But from my darling, who is coming on the morrow, I found a joyful letter, full of such loving anticipation that I must have been of marble if it had not moved me. From my guardian, too, I found another letter, asking me to tell Dame Durden, if I should see that little woman anywhere, that they had moped most pitiably without her that the housekeeping was going to wreck and ruin, that nobody else could manage the keys, and that everybody in and about the house declared it was not the same house, and was becoming rebellious for her return. Two such letters together made me think how far beyond my deserts I was beloved, and how happy I ought to be. That made me think of all my past life, and that brought me, as it ought to have done before, into a better condition for i saw very well that i could not have been intended to die or i should never have lived not to say should never have been reserved for such a happy life i saw very well how many things had worked together for my welfare and that if the sins of the fathers were sometimes visited upon the children the phrase did not mean what i had in the morning feared it meant i knew i was as innocent of my birth as a queen of hers and that before my heavenly father I should not be punished for birth, nor a queen rewarded for it. I had had experience, in the shock of that very day, that I could, even thus soon, find comforting reconcilements to the chains that had fallen on me. I renewed my resolutions, and prayed to be strengthened in them, pouring out my heart for myself and for my unhappy mother, and feeling that the darkness of the morning was passing away. It was not upon my sleep and when the next day's light awoke me, it was gone. My dear girl was to arrive at five o'clock in the afternoon. How to help myself through the intermediate time, better than by taking a long walk along the road by which she was to come, I did not know. So Charlie and I, and Stubbs, Stubbs saddled, for we never drove him after the one great occasion, made a long expedition along that road and back. On our return we held a great review of the house and garden, and saw that everything was in its prettiest condition, and had the bird out ready as an important part of the establishment. There were more than two full hours yet to elapse before she could come, and in that interval, which seemed a long one, I must confess I was nervously anxious about my altered looks. 
I loved my darling so well that I was more concerned for their effect on her than on any one. I was not in this slight distress because I had at all repined, I am quite certain that I did not that day, but I thought, would she be wholly prepared? When she first saw me, might she not be a little shocked and disappointed? Might it not prove a little worse than she expected? Might she not look for her old Esther and not find her? Might she not have to grow used to me and begin all over again? I knew the various expressions of my sweet girl's face so well and it was such an honest face in its loveliness, that I was sure beforehand she could not hide that first look from me. And I considered whether, if it should signify any one of these meanings, which was so very likely, could I quite answer for myself. Well, I thought I could. After last night, I thought I could. But to wait and wait and expect and expect and think and think was such bad preparation that I resolved to go along the road again and meet her. So I said to Charlie, Charlie, I will go by myself and walk along the road until she comes. Charlie, highly approving of anything that pleased me, I went and left her at home. But before I got to the second milestone, I had been in so many palpitations from seeing dust in the distance, though I knew it was not, and could not, be the coach yet, that I resolved to turn back and go home again. And when I had turned, I was in such fear of the coach coming up behind me, though I still knew that it neither would nor could do any such thing, that I ran the greater part of the way to avoid being overtaken. Then I considered, when I had got safe back again, this was a nice thing to have done. Now I was hot, and had made the worst of it instead of the best. At last, when I believed there was at least quarter of an hour more yet, Charlie all at once cried out to me, as I was trembling in the garden, "'Here she comes, miss! Here she is!' I did not mean to do it, but I went upstairs into my room, and hid myself behind the door. There I stood trembling, even when I heard my darling calling, as she came upstairs. "'Esther, my dear, my love, where are you, little woman, dear Dame Durden?' She ran in, and was running out again when she saw me. "'Ah, oh, my angel girl, the old dear look, all love, all fondness, all affection, nothing else in it, no, nothing, nothing. Oh, how happy I was, down upon the floor, with my sweet, beautiful girl down upon the floor, too, holding my scarred face to her lovely cheek, bathing it with tears and kisses, rocking me to and fro like a child, calling me by every tender name that she could think of, and pressing me to her faithful heart. End of chapter 36 Chapter thirty seven of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty seven. John Dice and John Dice. If the secret I had to keep had been mine, I must have confided it to Ada before we had been long together. But it was not mine and I did not feel that I had a right to tell it, even to my guardian, 
unless some great emergency arose. It was a weight to bear alone. Still, my present duty appeared to be plain, and blessed in the attachment of my dear, I did not want an impulse and encouragement to do it. Though often when she was asleep, and all was quiet, the remembrance of my mother kept me waking, and made the night sorrowful. I did not yield to it at another time, and Ada found me what I used to be, except, of course, in that particular of which I have said enough, and which I have no intention of mentioning any more just now, if I can help it. The difficulty that I felt in being quite composed that first evening, when Ada asked me, over our work, if the family were at the house, and when I was obliged to answer yes, I believed so, for Lady Dedlock had spoken to me in the woods the day before yesterday, was great. Greater still when Ada asked me what she had said, and when I replied that she had been kind and interested, and when Ada, while admitting her beauty and elegance, remarked upon her proud manner and her imperious chilling air. But Charlie helped me through, unconsciously, by telling us that Lady Dedlock had only stayed at the house two nights on her way from London, to visit at some other great house in the next county, and that she had left early on the morning after we had seen her at our view, as we called it. Charlie verified the adage about little pictures, I am sure, for she heard of more sayings and doings in a day than would have come to my ears in a month. We were to stay a month at Mr. Boythorn's. My pet had scarcely been there a bright week, as I recollect the time, when one evening, after we had finished helping the gardener in watering his flowers, and just as the candles were lighted, Charlie, appearing with a very important air behind Ada's chair, beckoned me mysteriously out of the room. "'Oh, if you please, miss,' said Charlie in a whisper, with her eyes their roundest and largest, "'you're wanted at the Dedlock Arms.' "'Why, Charlie,' said I, "'who can possibly want me at the public house?' "'I don't know, miss,' returned Charlie, putting her head forward and folding her hands tight upon the band of her little apron, which she always did in the enjoyment of anything mysterious or confidential. "'But it's a gentleman, miss, and his compliments, and will you please to come without saying anything about it?' "'Whose compliments, Charlie?' "'His'n, miss,' returned Charlie, whose grammatical education was advancing, but not very rapidly. "'And how do you come to be the messenger, Charlie?' "'I'm not the messenger, if you please, miss.' returned my little maid. It was W. Grubble, miss. And who is W. Grubble, Charlie? Mr. Grubble, miss, returned Charlie. Don't you know, miss, the Deadlock Arms by W. Grubble, which Charlie delivered as if she were slowly spelling out the sign. I, the landlord, Charlie? Yes, miss. "'If you please, miss. "'His wife is a beautiful woman, "'but she broke her ankle, and it never joined. "'And her brother's the sawyer that was put in the cage, miss, "'and they expect he'll drink himself to death entirely on beer,' said Charlie. "'Not knowing what might be the matter, "'and being easily apprehensive now, "'I thought it best to go to this place by myself.' I bade Charlie be quick with my bonnet and veil and my shawl, and having put them on, went away down the little hilly street, where I was as much at home as in Mr. Boythorn's garden. 
Mr. Grubble was standing in his shirt-sleeves at the door of his very clean little tavern, waiting for me. He lifted off his hat with both hands when he saw me coming, and carrying it so, as if it were an iron vessel, it looked as heavy, preceded me along the sanded passage to his best parlour, a neat carpeted room with more plants in it than were quite convenient, a coloured print of Queen Caroline, several shells, a good many tea-trays, two stuffed and dried fish in glass cases, and either a curious egg or a curious pumpkin, but I don't know which and I doubt if many people did, hanging from his ceiling. I knew Mr. Grubble very well by sight from his often standing at his door, a pleasant-looking, stoutish, middle-aged man, who never seemed to consider himself cosily dressed for his own fireside without his hat and top-boots, but who never wore a coat, except at church. He snuffed the candle, and backing away a little, to see how it looked, backed out of the room, unexpectedly to me, for I was going to ask him by whom he had been sent. The door of the opposite parlour being then opened, I heard some voices, familiar in my ears, I thought, which stopped. A quick, light step approached the room in which I was, and who should stand before me but Richard? "'My dear Esther,' he said, "'my best friend.' and he really was so warm-hearted and earnest that in the first surprise and pleasure of his brotherly greeting i could scarcely find breath to tell him that ada was well answering my very thoughts always the same dear girl said richard leading me to a chair and seating himself beside me i put up my veil but not quite always the same dear girl said richard just as heartily as before I put up my veil altogether, and laying my hand on Richard's sleeve, and looking in his face, told him how much I thanked him for his kind welcome, and how greatly I rejoiced to see him, the more so because of the determination I had made in my illness, which I now conveyed to him. "'My love,' said Richard, "'there is no one with whom I have a greater wish to talk than you, for I want you to understand me.' "'And I want you, Richard,' said I shaking my head, to understand someone else. "'Since you refer so immediately to John Jarndyce,' said Richard, "'I suppose you mean him?' "'Of course I do.' "'Then I may say at once that I am glad of it, because it is on that subject that I am anxious to be understood. By you, mind. You, my dear. I am not accountable to Mr. Jarndyce, or Mr. Anybody.' I was pained to find him taking this tone, and he observed it. "'Well, well, my dear,' said Richard, "'we won't go into that now. I want to appear quietly in your country house here, with you under my arm, and give my charming cousin a surprise. I suppose your loyalty to John Jarndyce will allow that?' "'My dear Richard,' I returned, "'you know you would be heartily welcome at his house, your home, if you will but consider it so, and you are as heartily welcome here. "'Spoken like the best of little women,' cried Richard gaily. I asked him how he liked his profession. "'Oh, I like it well enough,' said Richard. "'It's all right. It does as well as anything else for a time. I don't know that I shall care about it when I come to be settled, but I can sell out then, and—oh, uh, never mind all that botheration at present.' 
so young and handsome, and in all respects so perfectly the opposite of Miss Flight, and yet in the clouded, eager, seeking look that passed over him, so dreadfully like her. "'I am in town on leave just now,' said Richard. "'Indeed?' "'Yes. I have run over to look after my—my chancery interests before the long vacation,' said Richard, forcing a careless laugh. "'We are beginning to spin along with that old suit at last, I promise you.' "'No wonder that I shook my head.' "'As you say, it's not a pleasant subject.' Richard spoke, with the same shade crossing his face as before. "'Let it go to the four winds for to-night. Puff! Gone! Who do you suppose is with me?' "'Was it Mr. Skimpole's voice I heard?' "'That's the man. He does me more good than anybody. What a fascinating child it is!' "'I asked Richard if anyone knew of their coming down together. He answered, "'No, nobody.' He had been to call upon the dear old infant, so he called Mr. Skimpole, and the dear old infant had told him where we were, and he had told the dear old infant he was bent on coming to see us, and the dear old infant had directly wanted to come too, and so he had brought him. "'And he is worth, not to say his sordid expenses, but thrice his weight in gold,' said Richard. "'He is such a cheery fellow. No worldliness about him.' fresh and green-hearted. I certainly did not see the proof of Mr. Skimpole's worldliness in his having his expenses paid by Richard, but I made no remark about that. Indeed, he came in and turned our conversation. He was charmed to see me, said he had been shedding delicious tears of joy and sympathy at intervals for six weeks on my account, had never been so happy as in hearing of my progress, began to understand the mixture of good and evil in the world now, felt that he appreciated health the more when somebody else was ill, didn't know but what it might be in the scheme of things that A should squint to make B happier in looking straight, or that C should carry a wooden leg to make D better satisfied with his flesh and blood in a silk stocking. "'My dear Miss Summerson, here is our friend Richard.' said Mr. Skimpole, full of the brightest visions of the future which he evokes out of the darkness of chancery. Now that's delightful, that's inspiriting, that's full of poetry. In old times the woods and solitudes were made joyous to the shepherd by the imaginary piping and dancing of Pan and the nymphs. This present shepherd, our pastoral Richard, brightens the dull inns of court by making fortune and her train sport through them to the melodious notes of a judgment from the bench. That's very pleasant, you know. Some ill-conditioned growling fellow may say to me, What's the use of these legal and equitable abuses? How do you defend them? I reply, my growling friend, I don't defend them, but they are very agreeable to me. There is a shepherd, youth, a friend of mine, who transmutes them into something highly fascinating to my simplicity. I don't so it is, but this that they exist, for I am a child among you worldly grumblers, and not called upon to account to you or myself for anything. But it may be so." I began seriously to think that Richard could scarcely have found a worse friend than this. 
it made me uneasy that at such a time, when he most required some right principle and purpose, he should have this captivating looseness and putting off of everything, this airy dispensing with all principle and purpose at his elbow. I thought I could understand how such a nature as my guardian's, experienced in the world and forced to contemplate the miserable evasions and contentions of the family misfortune, found an immense relief in Mr. Skimpole's avowal of his weaknesses and display of guileless candour. But I could not satisfy myself that it was as artless as it seemed, or that it did not serve Mr. Skimpole's idle turn quite as well as any other part, and with less trouble. They both walked back with me, and Mr. Skimpole, leaving us at the gate, I walked softly in with Richard, and said, "'Ada, my love, I have brought a gentleman to visit you.' It was not difficult to read the blushing, startled face. She loved him dearly, and he knew it, and I knew it. It was a very transparent business, that meeting as cousins only. I almost mistrusted myself as growing quite wicked in my suspicions, but I was not so sure that Richard loved her dearly. He admired her very much. Any one must have done that, and I dare say would have renewed their youthful engagement with great pride and ardour, but that he knew how she would respect her promise to my guardian. Still I had a tormenting idea that the influence upon him extended even here, that he was postponing his best truth and earnestness in this, as in all things, until Jarndyce and Jarndyce should be off his mind. Ah, oh, me! What Richard would have been without that blight, I never shall know now. He told Ada, in his most ingenuous way, that he had not come to make any secret inroad on the terms she had accepted, rather too implicitly and confidingly, he thought, from Mr. Jarndyce, that he had come openly to see her, and to see me, and to justify himself for the present terms on which he stood with Mr. Jarndyce. As the dear old infant would be with us directly, he begged that I would make an appointment for the morning, when he might set himself right, through the means of an unreserved conversation with me. I proposed to walk with him in the park at seven o'clock, and this was arranged. Mr. Skimpole soon afterwards appeared, and made us merry for an hour. He particularly requested to see little Covinces, meaning Charlie, and told her, with a patriarchal air, that he had given her late father all the business in his power, and if one of her little brothers would make haste to get set up in the same profession, he hoped he should still be able to put a good deal of employment in his way. "'For I am constantly being taken in these nets,' said Mr. Skimpole, looking beamingly at us over a glass of wine and water, "'and am constantly being bailed out like a boat, or paid off like a ship's company. Somebody always does it for me. I can't do it, you know, for I never have any money. But somebody does it. I get out by somebody's means.' I am not like the starling. I get out. If you were to ask me who somebody is, upon my word I couldn't tell you. Let us drink to somebody. God bless him." Richard was a little late in the morning, but I had not to wait for him long and return into the park. The air was bright and dewy and the sky without a cloud. The birds sang delightfully 
the sparkles in the fern, the grass and trees, were exquisite to see. The richness of the woods seemed to have increased twentyfold since yesterday, as if in the still night, when they had looked so massively hushed in sleep, nature, through all the minute details of every wonderful leaf, had been more wakeful than usual for the glory of that day. "'This is a lovely place,' said Richard, looking round. "'None of the jar and discord of lawsuits here.' "'But there was other trouble.' "'I tell you what, my dear girl,' said Richard, "'when I get affairs in general settled, I shall come down here, I think, and rest.' "'Would it not be better to rest now?' I asked. "'Oh, as to resting now,' said Richard, "'or as to doing anything very definite now, that's not easy. In short, it can't be done. I can't do it, at least.' "'Why not?' said I. "'You know why not, Esther. If you were living in an unfinished house, liable to have the roof put on or taken off, to be from top to bottom pulled down or built up, to-morrow, next day, next week, next month, next year, you would find it hard to rest or settle. So do I. Now? There's no now for us suitors." I could almost have believed in the attraction on which my poor little wandering friend had expatiated, when I saw again the darkened look of last night. Terrible to think it had in it, also, a shade of that unfortunate man who had died. "'My dear Richard,' said I, "'this is a bad beginning of our conversation.' "'I knew you would tell me so, Dame Durden.' "'And not I alone, dear Richard. It was not I who cautioned you once never to found a hope or expectation on the family curse.' "'There you come back to John Jarndyce,' said Richard impatiently. "'Well, we must approach him sooner or later, for he is the staple of what I have to say.' and it's as well at once. My dear Esther, how can you be so blind? Don't you see that he is an interested party, and that it may be very well for him to wish me to know nothing of the suit, and care nothing about it, but that it may not be quite so well for me? Oh, Richard, I remonstrated, is it possible that you can ever have seen him and heard him, that you can ever have lived under his roof and known him, and can yet breathe, even to me, in this solitary place where there is no one to hear us, such unworthy suspicions?" He reddened deeply, as if his natural generosity felt a pang of reproach. He was silent for a little while before he replied in a subdued voice, "'Esther, I am sure you know that I am not a mean fellow and that I have some sense of suspicion and distrust, being poor qualities in one of my years. "'I know it very well,' said I. "'I'm not more sure of anything.' "'That's a dear girl,' retorted Richard, "'and like you, because it gives me comfort. I had need to get some scrap of comfort out of all this business, for it's a bad one, at the best, as I have no occasion to tell you.' "'I know perfectly,' said I. "'I know as well, Richard. "'What shall I say? "'As well as you do, "'that such misconstructions are foreign to your nature, "'and I know as well as you know "'what so changes it.' "'Come, sister, come,' said Richard, a little more gaily. 
you will be fair with me at all events. If I have the misfortune to be under that influence, so has he. If it has a little twisted me, it may have a little twisted him, too. I don't say that he is not an honourable man. Out of all this complication and uncertainty, I am sure he is. But it taints everybody. You know it taints everybody. You have heard him say so fifty times. Then why should he escape?' "'Because,' said I, "'his is an uncommon character, and he has resolutely kept himself outside the circle, Richard.' "'No, because and because,' replied Richard, in his vivacious way, "'I am not sure, my dear girl, that it may be wise and specious to preserve that outward indifference. It may cause other parties interested to become lax about their interests, and people may die off, and points may drag themselves out of memory, and many things may smoothly happen that are convenient enough.' "'I was so touched with pity for Richard,' that I could not reproach him any more, even by a look. I remembered my guardian's gentleness towards his errors, and with what perfect freedom from resentment he had spoken of them. "'Esther,' Richard resumed, "'you are not to suppose that I have come here to make underhanded charges against John Jarndyce. I have only come to justify myself. What I say is, it was all very well, and we got on very well while I was a boy, utterly regardless of this same suit. But soon as I began to take an interest in it, and to look into it, then it was quite another thing. Then John Jarndyce discovers that Ada and I must break off, and that if I don't amend that very objectionable course, I am not fit for her. Now, Esther, I don't mean to amend that very objectionable course— I will not hold John Jarndyce's favour on those unfair terms of compromise which he has no right to dictate. Whether it pleases him or displeases him, I must maintain my rights and Ada's. I have been thinking about it a good deal, and this is the conclusion I have come to. Poor dear Richard! He had indeed been thinking about it a good deal. His face, his voice, his manner, all showed that too plainly. So I tell him honourably, you ought to know I have written to him about all this, that we are at issue, and that we had better be at issue openly than covertly. I thank him for his good will, and his protection, and he goes his road, and I go mine. The fact is, our roads are not the same. Under one of the wills in dispute, I should take much more than he. I don't mean to say that it is the one to be established— there it is, and it has its chance. "'I have not to learn from you, my dear Richard,' said I, of your letter. I had heard of it already, without an offended or angry word. "'Indeed,' replied Richard, softening. "'I am glad I said he was an honourable man, out of all this wretched affair. But I always say that, and have never doubted it.' "'Now, my dear Esther, I know these views of mine appear extremely harsh to you, and will to Ada when you tell her what has passed between us. But if you had gone into the case as I have, if you had only applied yourself to the papers as I did when I was at Kenge's, if you only knew what an accumulation of charges and counter-charges and suspicions and cross-suspicions they involve, 
you would think of me moderate in comparison.' "'Perhaps so,' said I. "'But do you think that, among those many papers, there is much truth and justice, Richard?' "'There is truth and justice somewhere in the case, Esther.' "'Or was once, long ago,' said I. "'Is, is, must be somewhere,' pursued Richard impetuously, "'and must be brought out.' To allow Ada to be made a bribe and hush money of is not the way to bring it out. You say the suit is changing me. John Jarndyce says it changes, has changed, and will change everybody who has any share in it. Then the greater right I have on my side, when I resolve to do all I can to bring it to an end. All you can, Richard. Do you think that in these many years no others have done all they could? "'Has the difficulty grown easier because of so many failures?' "'It can't last for ever,' returned Richard, with a fierceness kindling in him, which again presented to me that last sad reminder. "'I am young, and earnest, and energy and determination have done wonders many a time. Others have only half thrown themselves into it. I devote myself to it. I make it the object of my life.' "'Oh, Richard, my dear!' "'So much the worse! So much the worse!' "'No, no, no! Don't you be afraid for me!' he returned affectionately. "'You're a dear, good, wise, quiet, blessed girl. But you have your prepossessions. So I come round to John Jarndyce. I tell you, my good Esther, when he and I were on those terms which he found so convenient, we were not on natural terms.' "'Are division and animosity your natural terms, Richard?' "'No, I don't say that. I mean that all this business puts us on unnatural terms, with which natural relations are incompatible. See another reason for urging it on. I may find out, when it's over, that I have been mistaken in John Jarndyce. My head may be clearer when I am free of it, and I may then agree with what you say to-day. Very well. Then I shall acknowledge it.' and make him reparation. Everything postponed to that imaginary time. Everything held in confusion and indecision until then. Now, my best of confidants, said Richard, I want my cousin Ada to understand that I am not captious, fickle, and willful about John Jarndyce, but that I have this purpose and reason at my back. I wish to represent myself to her through you because she has a great esteem and respect for her cousin John, and I know you will soften the course I take, even though you disapprove of it. And—and uh, in short," said Richard, who had been hesitating through these words, "'I—I I don't like to represent myself in this litigious, contentious, doubting character to a confiding girl like Ada.' I told him that he was more like himself in those latter words than in anything he had said yet. "'Why?' acknowledged Richard. "'That may be true enough, my love. I rather feel it to be so. But I shall be able to give myself fair play by and by. I shall come all right again, then. Don't you be afraid.' I asked him if this were all he wished me to tell Ada. "'Not quite,' said Richard. I am bound not to withhold from her that John Jarndyce answered my letter in his usual manner, addressing me as, My dear Rick, 
trying to argue me out of my opinions, and telling me that they should make no difference in him. All very well, of course, but not altering the case. I also want Ada to know that if I see her seldom just now, I am looking after her interests as well as my own, we two being in the same boat exactly, and that I hope she will not suppose from any flying rumours she may hear that I am at all light-headed or imprudent. On the contrary, I am always looking forward to the termination of the suit, and always planning in that direction. Being of age now, and having taken the step I have taken, I consider myself free from any accountability to John Jarndyce. But Ada, being still a ward of the court, I don't yet ask her to renew our engagement. When she is free to act for herself, I shall be myself once more, and we shall both be in very different worldly circumstances, I believe. If you tell her all this with the advantage of your considerate way— you will do me a very great and a very kind service, my dear Esther, and I shall knock John Dice and John Dice on the head with great vigour. Of course, I ask for no secrecy at Bleak House. Richard, said I, you place great confidence in me, but I fear you will not take advice from me. It's impossible that I can on this subject, my dear girl. On any other, readily. As if there were any other in his life as if his whole career and character were not being dyed one colour. "'But I may ask you a question, Richard?' <laughs> "'I think so,' said he, laughing. "'I don't know who may not, if you may not.' "'You say yourself you are not leading a very settled life.' "'How can I, my dear Esther, with nothing settled?' "'Are you in debt again?' "'Why, of course I am.' said Richard, astonished at my simplicity. "'Is it, of course?' "'My dear child, certainly. I can't throw myself into an object so completely without expense. You forget, or perhaps you don't know, that under either of the wills, Ada and I take something. It's only a question between the larger sum and the smaller. I shall be within the mark anyway. Bless your heart, my excellent girl!' said Richard, quite amused with me. "'I shall be all right. I shall pull through, my dear.' I felt so deeply sensible of the danger in which he stood, that I tried, in Ada's name, in my guardian's, in my own, by every fervent means that I could think of, to warn him of it, and to show him some of his mistakes. He received everything I said, with patience and gentleness, but it all rebounded from him without taking the least effect. I could not wonder at this after the reception his preoccupied mind had given to my guardian's letter, but I determined to try Ada's influence yet. So when our walk brought us round to the village again, and I went home to breakfast, I prepared Ada for the account I was going to give her, and told her exactly what reason we had to dread that Richard was losing himself and scattering his whole life to the winds. It made her very unhappy, of course, though she had a far, far greater reliance on his correcting his errors than I could have, which was so natural and loving in my dear, and she presently wrote him this little letter. My dearest cousin, Esther has told me all you said to her this morning. I write this to repeat most earnestly for myself all that she said to you, and to let you know how sure I am that you will sooner or later find our cousin John a pattern of truth 
sincerity, and goodness, when you will deeply, deeply grieve to have done him, without intending it, so much wrong. I do not quite know how to write what I wish to say next, but I trust you will understand it as I mean it. I have some fears, my dearest cousin, that it may be partly for my sake you are now laying up so much unhappiness for yourself, and if for yourself, for me. In case this should be so, or in case you should entertain much thought of me in what you are doing, I most earnestly entreat and beg you to desist. You can do nothing for my sake that will make me half so happy as for ever turning your back upon the shadow in which we both were born. Do not be angry with me for saying this. Pray, pray, dear Richard, for my sake and for your own, and in a natural repugnance for that source of trouble which had its share in making us both orphans when we were very young, pray, pray, let it go for ever. We have reason to know by this time that there is no good in it, and no hope, that there is nothing to be got from it but sorrow. My dearest cousin, it is needless for me to say that you are quite free, and that it is very likely you may find someone who you will love much better than your first fancy. I am quite sure, if you will let me say so, that the object of your choice would greatly prefer to follow your fortunes far and wide, however moderate or poor, and see you happy, doing your duty, and pursuing your chosen way, than to have the hope of being, or even to be, very rich with you, if such a thing were possible, at the cost of dragging years of procrastination and anxiety, and of your indifference to other aims. You may wonder at my saying this so confidently, with so little knowledge or experience, but I know it for a certainty, from my own heart. Ever, my dearest cousin, your most affectionate, Ada. This note brought Richard to us very soon, but it made little change in him, if any. We would fairly try, he said, who was right and who was wrong. He would show us. We should see. He was animated and glowing, as if Ada's tenderness had gratified him. But I could only hope with a sigh that the letter might have some stronger effect upon his mind, on reperusal, than it assuredly had then. As they were to remain with us that day, and had taken their places to return by the coach next morning, I sought an opportunity of speaking to Mr. Skimpole. Our out-of-door life easily threw one in my way, and I delicately said that there was a responsibility in encouraging Richard. "'Responsibility, my dear Miss Summerson,' he repeated, catching at the word with the pleasantest smile. "'I am the last man in the world for such a thing. I never was responsible in my life. I can't be.' "'I'm afraid everybody is obliged to be.' said I, timidly enough, he being so much older and more clever than I. "'No, really?' said Mr. Skimpole, receiving this new light with the most agreeable jocularity of surprise. "'But every man's not obliged to be solvent. I am not. I never was. See, my dear Miss Summerson,' he took a handful of loose silver and halfpence from his pocket, "'there's so much money.' I have not an idea how much. I have not the power of counting. Call it four and ninepence. Call it four pound nine. They tell me I owe more than that. 
"'I dare say I do. I dare say I owe as much as good-natured people will let me owe. If they don't stop, why should I? There, you have Harold Skimpole in little. If that's responsibility, I am responsible.' The perfect ease of manner with which he put the money up again, and looked at me with a smile on his refined face, as if he had been mentioning a curious little fact about somebody else, almost made me feel as if he really had nothing to do with it. "'Now, when you mention responsibility,' he resumed, "'I am disposed to say that I never had the happiness of knowing any one whom I should consider so refreshingly responsible as yourself. You appear to me to be the very touchstone of responsibility.' when i see you my dear miss summerson intent upon the perfect working of the whole little orderly system of which you are the centre i feel inclined to say to myself in fact i do say to myself very often that's responsibility it was difficult after this to explain what i meant but i persisted so far as to say that we all hoped he would check and not confirm Richard in the sanguine views he entertained just then. "'Most willingly,' he retorted, "'if I could. But, my dear Miss Summerson, I have no art, no disguise. If he takes me by the hand and leads me through Westminster Hall, in an airy procession after fortune, I must go. If he says, Skimpole, join the dance,' i must join common sense wouldn't i know but i have no common sense it was very unfortunate for richard i said do you think so returned mr skimpole don't say that don't say that let us suppose him keeping company with common sense an excellent man a good deal wrinkled dreadfully practical change for a ten-pound note in every pocket, ruled account-book in his hands, say, upon the whole resembling a tax-gatherer. Ah, dear Richard, sanguine, ardent, overleaping obstacles, bursting with poetry like a young bud, says to this highly respectable companion, I see a golden prospect before me, it's very bright, it's very beautiful, it's very joyous. Here I go, bounding over the landscape, to come at it. The respectable companion instantly knocks him down with the ruled account-book, tells him in a literal prosaic way that he sees no such thing, shows him it's nothing but fees, fraud, horsehair wigs, and black gowns. Now you know that's a painful change. Sensible in the last agreed, I have no doubt, but disagreeable. I can't do it. I haven't got the ruled account-book. I have none of the tax-gathering elements in my composition. I am not at all respectable, and I don't want to be. Odd, perhaps, but so it is." It was idle to say more, so I proposed that we should join Ada and Richard, who were a little in advance, and I gave up Mr. Skimpole in despair. He had been over the hall in the course of the morning, and whimsically described the family pictures as we walked. There were such portentous shepherdesses among the ladies deadlock, dead and gone, he told us, that peaceful crooks became weapons of assault in their hands. 
They tended their flocks severely, in buckram and powder, and put their sticking-plaster patches on to terrify commoners, as the chiefs of some other tribes put on their war-paint. There was a Sir Somebody deadlock, with a battle, a sprung-mine, volumes of smoke, flashes of lightning, a town on fire, and a stormed fort, all in full action between his horse's two hind legs, showing, he supposed, how little a deadlock made of such trifles. The whole race he represented as having evidently been, in life, what he called stuffed people, a large collection, glassy-eyed, set up in the most approved manner on their various twigs and perches, very correct, perfectly free from animation, and always in glass cases. I was not so easy now, during any reference to the name, but that I felt it a relief when Richard, with an exclamation of surprise, hurried away to meet a stranger, whom we first descried, coming slowly towards us. "'Dear me!' said Mr. Skimpole. "'Voles!' We asked if that were a friend of Richard's. "'Friend and legal adviser,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'Now, my dear Miss Summerson, if you want common sense, responsibility, and respectability, all united, if you want an exemplary man, Vols is the man.' "'We had not known,' we said, that Richard was assisted by any gentleman of that name. "'When he emerged from legal infancy,' returned Mr. Skimpole, he parted from our conversational friend Kenge, and took up, I believe, with Voles. Indeed, I know he did, because I introduced him to Voles. "'Had you known him long?' asked Ada. "'Voles? My dear Miss Clare, I had had that kind of acquaintance with him, which I have had with several gentlemen of his profession. He had done something rather in a very agreeable civil manner.' taken proceedings, I think, is the expression, which ended in the proceeding of his taking me. Somebody was so good as to step in and pay the money. Something and fourpence was the amount. I forget the pounds and shillings, but I know it ended with fourpence, because it struck me at the time as being so odd that I could owe anybody fourpence, and after that I brought them together. Bowles asked me for the introduction, and I gave it. Now I come to think of it. He looked inquiringly at us, with his frankest smile, as he made the discovery. "'Volves bribed me, perhaps? He gave me something, and called it commission. Was it a five-pound note? Do you know, I think it must have been a five-pound note.' His further consideration of the point was prevented by Richard's coming back to us in an excited state, and hastily representing Mr. Volves, a sallow man, with pinched lips that looked as if they were cold. A red eruption here and there upon his face, tall and thin, about fifty years of age, high-shouldered and stooping, dressed in black, black-gloved, and buttoned to the chin. There was nothing so remarkable in him as a lifeless manner and a slow, fixed way he had of looking at Richard. "'I hope I don't disturb you, ladies,' said Mr. Bowles, and now I observed that he was further remarkable for an inward manner of speaking. 
I arranged with Mr. Carthstone that he should always know when his cause was in the Chancellor's paper, and being informed by one of his clerks last night after post-time that it stood rather unexpectedly in the paper for to-morrow, I put myself into the coach early this morning and came down to confer with him. Yes, said Richard, flushed and looking triumphantly at Ada and me. We don't do these things in the old slow way now. We spin along now. Mr. Bowles, we must hire something to get over to the post town in, and catch the mail to-night, and go up by it. Anything you please, sir, returned Mr. Bowles. I am quite at your service. Let me see, said Richard, looking at his watch. If I run down to the deadlock, and get my portmanteau fastened up, and order a gig, or a chaise, or whatever's to be got, we shall have an hour, then, before starting. I'll come back to tea. Cousin Ada, will you and Esther take care of Mr. Vowles when I am gone? He was away directly, in his heat and hurry, and was soon lost in the dusk of evening. We who were left walked on towards the house. "'Is Mr. Carstone's presence necessary to-morrow, sir?' said I. "'Can it do any good?' "'No, miss,' Mr. Bowles replied. "'I am not aware that it can.' Both Ada and I expressed our regret that he should go, then, only to be disappointed. "'Mr. Carstone has laid down the principle of watching his own interests,' said Mr. Bowles. "'And when a client lays down his own principle, and it is not immoral, it devolves upon me to carry it out.' I wish in business to be exact and open. I am a widower with three daughters, Emma, Jane, and Caroline, and my desire is so to discharge duties of life as to leave them a good name. This appears to be a pleasant spot, miss." The remark being made to me, in consequence of my being next him as we walked, I assented and enumerated its chief attractions. Indeed said Mr. Bowles. "'I have the privilege of supporting an aged father in the Vale of Taunton, his native place, and I admire that country very much. I had no idea there was anything so attractive here.' To keep up the conversation, I asked Mr. Bowles if he would like to live altogether in the country. "'There, miss,' said he, "'you touch me on a tender string. My health is not good.' my digestion being much impaired, and if I had only myself to consider, I should take refuge in rural habits, especially as the cares of business have prevented me from ever coming much into contact with general society, and particularly with ladies' society, which I have most wished to mix in. But with my three daughters, Emma, Jane, and Caroline, and my aged father, I cannot afford to be selfish. It is true I have no longer to maintain a dear grandmother, who died in her hundred and second year, but enough remains to render it indispensable that the mill should be always going." It required some attention to hear him, on account of his inward speaking and his lifeless manner. "'You will excuse my having mentioned my daughters,' he said. "'They are my weak point.' I wish to leave the poor girls some little independence, as well as a good name." We now arrived at Mr. Boythorn's house, where the tea-table, all prepared, was awaiting us, 
Richard came in restless and hurried shortly afterwards, and, leaning over Mr. Vowles's chair, whispered something in his ear. Mr. Vowles replied aloud, or as nearly aloud, I suppose, as he had ever replied to anything. "'You will drive me, will you, sir? It is all the same to me, sir. Anything you please, I am quite at your service.' We understood from what followed that Mr. Skimpole was to be left until the morning to occupy the two places which had been already paid for. As Ada and I were both in low spirits concerning Richard, and very sorry so to part with him, we made it as plain as we politely could that we should leave Mr. Skimpole to the Dedlock Arms, and retire when the night travellers were gone. Richard's high spirits, carrying everything before them, we all went out together to the top of the hill above the village, where he had ordered a gig to wait, and where we found a man with a lantern standing at the head of the gaunt pale horse that had been harnessed to it. I never shall forget those two, seated side by side in the lantern's light, Richard all flush and fire and laughter, with the reins in his hand, Mr. Vowles quite still, black-gloved and buttoned up, looking at him, as if he were looking at his prey, and charming it. I have before me the whole picture of the warm dark night, the summer lightning, the dusty track of road closed in by hedgerows and high trees, the gaunt pale horse with its ears pricked up, and the driving away at speed, to Jarndyce and Jarndyce. My dear girl told me that night, how Richard's being thereafter prosperous or ruined, befriended or deserted, could only make this difference to her, that the more he needed love from one unchanging heart, the more love that unchanging heart would have to give him, how he thought of her through his present errors, and she would think of him at all times, never of herself, if she could devote herself to him, never of her own delights, if she could minister to his. And she kept her word? I look along the road before me, where the distance already shortens, and the journey's end is growing visible, and true and good above the dead sea of the chancery suit, and all the ashy fruit it cast ashore, I think I see my darling. End of chapter 37「Chapter thirty eight of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty eight. A Struggle. When our time came for returning to Bleak House again, we were punctual to the day, and were received with an overpowering welcome. I was perfectly restored to health and strength, and finding my housekeeping keys laid ready for me in my room, rang myself in, as if I had been a new year, with a merry little peal. "'Once more, duty, duty, Esther,' said I, and if you are not overjoyed to do it, more than cheerfully and contentedly, through anything and everything, you ought to be. That's all I have to say to you, my dear.' The first few mornings were mornings of so much bustle and business, devoted to such settlements of accounts, such repeated journeys to and fro between the growlery and all other parts of the house, so many rearrangements of drawers and presses, and such a general new beginning altogether, that I had not a moment's leisure. 
but when these arrangements were completed, and everything was in order, I paid a visit of a few hours to London, which something in the letter I had destroyed at Chesney Wold had induced me to decide upon in my own mind. I made Caddy Jellyby, her maiden name was so natural to me that I always called her by it, the pretext for this visit, and wrote her a note previously, asking the favour of her company on a little business expedition. Leaving home very early in the morning, I got to London by stagecoach in such good time that I got to Newman Street with the day before me. Caddy, who had not seen me since her wedding day, was so glad and so affectionate that I was half inclined to fear I should make her husband jealous. But he was, in his way, just as bad—I mean as good—and, in short, it was the old story, and nobody would leave me any possibility of doing anything meritorious. The elder Mr. Turvydrop was in bed, I found, and Caddy was milling his chocolate, which a melancholy little boy, who was an apprentice—it seemed such a curious thing to be apprenticed to the trade of dancing—was waiting to carry upstairs. Her father-in-law was extremely kind and considerate, Caddy told me, and they lived most happily together. When she spoke of their living together, she meant that the old gentleman had all the good things, and all the good lodging, while she and her husband had what they could get, and were poked into two corner rooms over the mews. "'And how is your mamma, Caddy?' said I. "'Why, I hear of her, Esther,' replied Caddy, through Pa, but I see very little of her. We're good friends, I'm glad to say, but Ma thinks there is something absurd in my having married a dancing master, and she's rather afraid if it's extending to her. It struck me that if Mrs. Jellyby had discharged her own natural duties and obligations before she swept the horizon with a telescope in search of others, she would have taken the best precautions against becoming absurd, but I need scarcely observe that I kept this to myself. And your papa, Caddy? "'He comes here every evening,' returned Caddy, "'and he's so fond of sitting in the corner <laughs> that it's a treat to see him.' Looking at the corner, I plainly perceived the mark of Mr. Jellyby's head against the wall. It was consolatory to know that he had found such a resting-place for it. "'And you, Caddy,' said I, "'you're always busy, I'll be bound.' "'Well, my dear,' returned Caddy, "'I am indeed.' "'For to tell you a grand secret, I am qualifying myself to give lessons. "'Prince's health is not strong, and I want to be able to assist him. "'What with schools, and classes here, and private pupils, and the apprentices, "'he really has too much to do, poor fellow.' "'The notion of the apprentices was still so odd to me "'that I asked Caddy if there were many of them. Four, said Caddy, one indoor, and three out.' They are very good children, only when they get together they will play, children-like, instead of attending to their work. So the little boy you saw just now waltzes by himself in the empty kitchen, and we distribute the others over the house as well as we can. "'That is only for their steps, of course,' said I. "'Only for their steps,' said Caddy. "'In that way they practice, so many hours at a time, whatever steps they happen to be upon.' They dance in the academy, and at this time of year we do figures at five every morning. "'Why, what a laborious life!' I exclaimed. "'I assure you, my dear,' returned Caddy, smiling, "'when the outdoor apprentices ring us up in the morning, 
the bell rings into our room, not to disturb old Mr. Turveydrop, and when I put up the window and see them standing on the doorstep with their little pumps under their arms, I am actually reminded of the sweeps. All this presented the art to me in a singular light, to be sure. Caddy enjoyed the effect of her communication, and cheerfully recounted the particulars of her own studies. "'You see, my dear, to save expense, I ought to know something of the piano, and I ought to know something of the kit, too, and consequently I have to practice those two instruments, as well as the details of our profession. If Ma had been like anybody else, I might have had some little musical knowledge to begin upon. However—' I hadn't any, and that part of the work is, at first, a little discouraging, I must allow. But I have a very good ear, and I'm used to drudgery. I have to thank Ma for that, at all events. And where there's a will, there's a way, you know, Esther, the world over. Saying these words, Caddy laughingly sat down at a little jingling square piano, and really rattled off a quadrille, with great spirit. Then she good-humouredly and blushingly got up again, and while she still laughed herself, said, "'Don't you laugh at me, please. That's a dear girl.' I would sooner have cried, but I did neither. I encouraged her, and praised her with all my heart, for I conscientiously believed, dancing-master's wife though she was, and dancing-mistress though in her limited ambition she aspired to be, she had struck out a natural, wholesome, loving course of industry and perseverance that was quite as good as a mission. "'My dear,' said Caddy, delighted, "'you can't think how you cheer me. I shall owe you. You don't know how much. What changes, Esther, even in my small world? You recollect that first night, when I was so unpolite and inky. Who would have thought then of my ever teaching people to dance?' of all other possibilities and impossibilities. Her husband, who had left us while we had this chat, now coming back, preparatory to exercising the apprentices in the ballroom, Caddy informed me she was quite at my disposal. But it was not my time yet. I was glad to tell her, for I should have been vexed to take her away then. Therefore we three adjourned to the apprentices together, and I made one in the dance. The apprentices were the queerest little people. Besides the melancholy boy, who, I hoped, had not been made so by waltzing alone in the empty kitchen, there were two other boys, and one dirty little limp girl in a gauzy dress. Such a precocious little girl, with such a dowdy bonnet on, that too of a gauzy texture, who brought her sandaled shoes in an old threadbare velvet reticule. Such mean little boys, when they were not dancing, with string and marbles and cramp-bones in their pockets, and the most untidy legs and feet, and heels particularly. I asked Caddy what had made their parents choose this profession for them. Caddy said she didn't know. Perhaps they were designed for teachers, perhaps for the stage. They were all people in humble circumstances, and the melancholy boy's mother kept a ginger-beer shop. We danced for an hour with great gravity, the melancholy child doing wonders with his lower extremities, in which there appeared to be some sense of enjoyment, though it never rose above his waist. Caddy, while she was observant of her husband, and was evidently founded upon him, had acquired a grace and self-possession of her own, which, united to her pretty face and figure, was uncommonly agreeable. 
she already relieved him of much of the instruction of these young people, and he seldom interfered, except to walk his part in the figure if he had anything to do in it. He always played the tune. The affectation of the gauzy child, and her condescension to the boys, was a sight, and thus we danced an hour by the clock. When the practice was concluded, Caddy's husband made himself ready to go out of town to a school, and Caddy ran away to get ready to go out with me. I sat in the ballroom in the interval, contemplating the apprentices. The two outdoor boys went upon the staircase to put on their half-boots, and pull the indoor boy's hair, as I judge from the nature of his objections. Returning with their jackets buttoned, and their pumps stuck in them, they then produced packets of cold bread and meat, and bivouacked under a painted lyre on the wall. The little gauzy child, having whisked her sandals into the reticule, and put on a trodden-down pair of shoes, shook her head into the dowdy bonnet at one shake, and answering my inquiry whether she liked dancing by replying, "'Not with boys!' tied it across her chin, and went home contemptuous. "'Old Mr. Turveydrop is so sorry,' said Caddy, "'that he's not finished dressing yet, and cannot have the pleasure of seeing you before you go.' "'You are such a favourite of his, Esther.' I expressed myself much obliged to him, but did not think it necessary to add that I readily dispensed with his attention. "'It takes him a long time to dress,' said Caddy, "'because he's very much looked up to in such things, you know, and has a reputation to support. You can't think how kind he is to Pa. He talks to Pa of an evening about the Prince Regent, and I never saw Pa so interested.' "'There was something in the picture of Mr. Turveydrop bestowing his deportment on Mr. Jellyby that quite took my fancy. I asked Caddy if he brought her papa out much. "'No,' said Caddy. "'I don't know that he does that. But he talks to pa, and pa greatly admires him, and listens, and likes it. Of course, I'm aware that pa has hardly any claims to deportment, but they get on together delightfully.' "'You can't think what good companions they make. "'I never saw Pa take snuff before in my life, "'but he takes one pinch out of Mr. Turveydrop's box regularly, "'and keeps putting it to his nose, "'and taking it away again, all the evening.' "'That old Mr. Turveydrop should ever, "'in the chances and changes of life, "'have come to the rescue of Mr. Jellyby from Borriaboola Gar, "'appeared to me to be one of the pleasantest of oddities. "'As to Peepy,' said Caddy, with a little hesitation, whom I was most afraid of, next to having any family of my own, Esther, as an inconvenience to Mr. Turveydrop. The kindness of the old gentleman to that child is beyond everything. He asks to see him, my dear. He lets him take the newspaper up to him in bed. He gives him the crusts of his toast to eat. He sends him on little errands about the house. "'He tells him to come to me for sixpences. "'In short,' said Caddy cheerily, "'and not to prose, "'I am a very fortunate girl, "'and ought to be very grateful. "'Where are we going, Esther?' "'To the old street road,' said I, "'where I have a few words to say to the solicitor's clerk, "'who was sent to meet me at the coach-office "'on the very day when I came to London, "'and first saw you, my dear.' "'Now I think of it, the gentleman who brought us to your house.' "'Then, indeed, I seem to be naturally the person to go with you,' 
returned Caddy. To the old street road we went, and there inquired at Mrs. Guppy's residence for Mrs. Guppy. Mrs. Guppy, occupying the parlours, and having indeed been visibly in danger of cracking herself like a nut in the front parlour door, by peeping out before she was asked for, immediately presented herself, and requested us to walk in. She was an old lady in a large cap, with a rather red nose, and rather an unsteady eye, but smiling all over. Her close little sitting-room was prepared for a visit, and there was a portrait of her son in it, which, I had almost written here, was more like than life. It insisted upon him with such obstinacy, and was so determined not to let him off. Not only was the portrait there, but we found the original there, too. He was dressed in a great many colours, and was discovered at a table reading law-papers with his forefinger to his forehead. "'Miss Summerson,' said Mr. Guppy, rising, "'this is indeed an oasis. Mother, will you be so good as to put a chair for the other lady, and get out of the gangway?' Mrs. Guppy, whose incessant smiling gave her quite a waggish appearance, did as her son requested, and then sat down in a corner, holding her pocket-handkerchief to her chest, like a fomentation, with both hands. I presented Caddy, and Mr. Guppy said that any friend of mine was more than welcome. I then proceeded to the object of my visit. "'I took the liberty of sending you a note, sir,' said I. Mr. Guppy acknowledged the receipt by taking it out of his breast-pocket, putting it to his lips, and returning it to his pocket with a bow. Mr. Guppy's mother was so diverted that she rolled her head as she smiled, and made a silent appeal to Caddy with her elbow. "'Could I speak to you alone for a moment?' said I. Anything like the jocoseness of Mr. Guppy's mother just now, I think I never saw. She made no sound of laughter, but she rolled her head and shook it, and put her handkerchief to her mouth, and appealed to Caddy with her elbow and her hand and her shoulder and was so unspeakably entertained altogether that it was with some difficulty she could marshal Caddy through the little folding door into her bedroom adjoining. "'Miss Summerson,' said Mr. Guppy, "'you will excuse the waywardness of a parent, ever mindful of a son's happiness. My mother, though highly exasperating to the feelings, is actuated by maternal dictates.' I could hardly have believed that anybody could in a moment— have turned so red, or changed so much, as Mr. Guppy did, when I now put up my veil. "'I ask the favour of seeing you for a few moments here,' said I, "'in preference to calling at Mr. Kenge's, because, remembering what you said on an occasion, when you spoke to me in confidence, I feared I might otherwise cause you some embarrassment, Mr. Guppy.' "'I caused him embarrassment enough as it was, I am sure. I never saw such faltering.' such confusion, such amazement and apprehension. "'Miss uh, Summerson,' stammered Mr. Guppy, "'I, uh, I beg your pardon, but in our pr profession we, we find it necessary to be explicit. You have referred to an occasion, Miss, when I, uh, when I did myself the honour of uh, making a declaration which—' Something seemed to rise in his throat that he could not possibly swallow. He put his hand there, coughed, made faces, tried again to swallow it, coughed again, made faces again, 
looked all round the room, and fluttered his papers. Uh, "'A kind of <coughs> giddy sensation has come upon me, miss,' he explained, "'which rather knocks me over. I, uh, uh, a little subject to this sort of thing, uh, by George.' I gave him a little time to recover. He consumed it in putting his hand to his forehead, and taking it away again, and in backing his chair into the corner behind him. "'My intention was to remark, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, "'dear me, <coughs> something <coughs> bronchial, I think, <coughs> to remark that you was so good on that occasion as to repel and repudiate that declaration. You, you wouldn't perhaps object to admit that? Though no witnesses are present, it might be a satisfaction to, to your mind, if you was to put in that admission. There can be no doubt, said I, that I declined your proposal without any reservation or qualification whatever, Mr. Guppy. <sighs> Thank you, miss, he returned, measuring the table with his troubled hands. So far, that's satisfactory, and it does you credit. Uh, <coughs> this he certainly bronchial. Must be in the tubes. Uh, you wouldn't perhaps be offended if I was to mention, not that it's necessary for, for your own good sense or any person's sense must show him that, if I was to mention that such declaration on my part was final, and there terminated? I quite understand that, said I. Uh, perhaps, sir, uh, it, it, it may not be worth the form, but it might be a satisfaction to your mind. Perhaps you wouldn't object to admit that, miss, said Mr. Guppy. I admit it most fully and freely, said I. "'Thank you,' returned Mr. Guppy. "'Very honourable, I'm sure. I regret that my arrangements in life, combined with circumstances over which I have no control, will put it out of my power ever to fall back upon that offer, or to renew it in any shape or form whatever, but it will ever be a retrospect entwined uh, with friendship's bowers.' Mr. Guppy's bronchitis came to his relief, and stopped his measurement of the table. "'I may now perhaps mention what I wish to say to you,' I began. "'I shall be honoured, I am sure,' said Mr. Guppy. "'I am so persuaded that our own good sense and right feeling, Miss, will, uh, will keep you as square as possible.' that I can have nothing but pleasure, I am sure, in hearing any observations you may wish to offer. "'You were so good as to imply, on that occasion—excuse me, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, "'but we had better not travel out of the record into implication. I cannot admit that I implied anything.' "'You said, on that occasion,' I recommenced, that you might possibly have the means of advancing my interests, and promoting my fortunes, by making discoveries of which I should be the subject. I presume that you founded that belief upon your general knowledge of my being an orphan girl, 
indebted for everything to the benevolence of Mr. Jarndyce. Now, the beginning and the end of what I have come to beg of you is, Mr. Guppy, that you will have the kindness to relinquish all idea of so serving me. I have thought of this sometimes, and I have thought of it most lately, since I have been ill. At length I have decided, in case you should at any time recall that purpose, and act upon it in any way, to come to you, and assure you that you are altogether mistaken. You could make no discovery in reference to me that would do me the least service, or give me the least pleasure. I am acquainted with my personal history, and I have it in my power to assure you that you never can advance my welfare by such means. You may, perhaps, have abandoned this project a long time. If so, excuse my giving you unnecessary trouble. If not, I entreat you, on the assurance I have given you, henceforth to lay it aside, I beg you to do this for my peace. "'I am bound to confess,' said Mr. Guppy, "'that you express yourself, miss, with that good sense and right feeling for which I give you credit. Nothing can be more satisfactory than such right feeling.' and if I mistook any intentions on your part just now, I am prepared to tender a full apology. I should wish to be understood, miss, as hereby offering that apology, limiting it, as your own good sense and right feeling will point out the necessity of, to the present proceedings. I must say, for Mr. Guppy, that the snuffling manner he had had upon him proved very much. He seemed truly glad to be able to do something I asked, and he looked ashamed. "'If you will allow me to finish what I have to say at once, so that I may have no occasion to resume,' I went on, seeing him about to speak, "'you will do me a kindness, sir. I come to you as privately as possible, because you announced this impression of yours to be in a confidence which I have really wished to respect, and which I always have respected, as you remember. I have mentioned my illness. There really is no reason why I should hesitate to say— that I know very well that any little delicacy I might have had in making a request to you is quite removed. Therefore I make the entreaty I have now preferred, and I hope you will have sufficient consideration for me to accede to it. I must do Mr. Guppy the further justice of saying that he had looked more and more ashamed, and that he looked most ashamed and very earnest when he now replied with a burning face, Upon my word and honour, upon my life, upon my soul, Miss Summerson, as I am a living man, I'll act according to your wish. I'll never go another step in opposition to it. I'll take my oath to it, if it will be any satisfaction to you, in what I promise at this present time, touching the matters now in question. Continued Mr. Guppy, rapidly, as if he were repeating a familiar form of words. I speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so—' "'I am quite satisfied,' said I, rising at this point, "'and I thank you very much. "'Caddy, my dear, I am ready.' Mr. Guppy's mother returned with Caddy, now making me the recipient of her silent laughter and her nudges, and we took our leave. Mr. Guppy saw us to the door with the air of one who was either imperfectly awake or walking in his sleep, and we left him there staring. But in a minute— he came after us down the street, without any hat, and with his long hair all blown about, and stopped us, saying fervently, "'Miss Summerson, upon my own and soul, you may depend upon me.' "'I do,' said I, quite confidently, 
"'I beg your pardon, miss,' said Mr. Guppy, going with one leg and staying with the other. "'But this lady being present, your own witness, it might be a satisfaction to your mind, which I should wish to set at rest, if you was to repeat those admissions.' "'Well, Caddy,' said I, turning to her, "'perhaps you will not be surprised when I tell you, my dear, that there never has been any engagement.' "'No proposal, or promise of marriage whatsoever,' suggested Mr. Guppy. "'No proposal, or promise of marriage whatsoever,' said I. "'Between this gentleman, William Guppy, of Penton Place, Pentonville, in the county of Middlesex,' he murmured. "'Between this gentleman, Mr. William Guppy, of Penton Place, Pentonville, in the county of Middlesex, and myself.' "'Thank you, miss,' said Mr. Guppy. "'Very full.' Uh, excuse me, lady's name, Christian and surname, both. I gave them. Married woman, I believe, said Mr. Guppy. Married woman. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Formerly Caroline Jellyby Spinster, then of Thavies Inn, within the City of London, but extra-parochial, now of Newman Street, Oxford Street. Much obliged. He ran home, and came running back again. "'Touching that matter, you know, I really and truly am very sorry that my arrangements in life, combined with circumstances over which I have no control, should prevent a renewal of what was wholly terminated some time back,' said Mr. Guppy to me, forlornly and despondently. "'But it couldn't be. Now could it? Y you know, I, I only put it to you.' I replied it certainly could not. The subject did not admit of a doubt. He thanked me, and ran to his mother's again and back again. "'It's very honourable of you, miss, I'm sure,' said Mr. Guppy. "'If an altar could be erected in the bowers of friendship, but upon my soul you may rely upon me in every respect save and except the tender passion only.' The struggle in Mr. Guppy's breast, and the numerous oscillations it occasioned him between his mother's door and us, were sufficiently conspicuous in the windy street, particularly as his hair wanted cutting to make us hurry away. I did so with a lightened heart, but when we last looked back, Mr. Guppy was still oscillating, in the same troubled state of mind. End of chapter 38《Chapter 39 of Bleak House》this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 39. Attorney and Client. The name of Mr. Vowles, preceded by the legend Ground Floor, is inscribed upon a doorpost in Simon's Inn, Chancery Lane, a little, pale, wall-eyed, woe-begone inn, like a large dustbin of two compartments in a sifter. It looks as if Simon were a sparing man in his way, and constructed his inn of old building materials, which took kindly to the dry rot, and to dirt, and all things decaying and dismal, and perpetuated Simon's memory with congenial shabbiness. Quartered in this dingy hatchment, commemorative of Simon, are the legal bearings of Mr. Vole's. Mr. Vole's office, in disposition retiring, and in situation retired, is squeezed up in a corner, and blinks at a dead wall. 
Three feet of knotty-floored dark passage bring the client to Mr. Vowles's jet-black door in an angle profoundly dark on the brightest midsummer morning, and encumbered by a black bulkhead of cellarage staircase against which belated civilians generally strike their brows. Mr. Vowles's chambers are on so small a scale that one clerk can open the door without getting off his stool while the other, who elbows him at the same desk, has equal facilities for poking the fire. A smell as of unwholesome sheep-blending with the smell of must and dust is referable to the nightly, and often daily, consumption of mutton-fat in candles, and to the fretting of parchment forms and skins in greasy drawers. The atmosphere is otherwise stale and close. The place was last painted, or whitewashed, beyond the memory of man, and the two chimneys smoke, and there is a loose outer surface of soot everywhere, and the dull cracked windows in their heavy frames have but one piece of character in them, which is a determination to be always dirty and always shut unless coerced. This accounts for the phenomenon of the weaker of the two usually having a bundle of firewood thrust between its jaws in hot weather. Mr. Vowles is a very respectable man. He has not a large business but he is a very respectable man. He is allowed by the greater attorneys who have made good fortunes, or are making them, to be a most respectable man. He never misses a chance in his practice, which is a mark of respectability. He never takes any pleasure, which is another mark of respectability. He is reserved and serious, which is another mark of respectability. His digestion is impaired, which is highly respectable and he is making hay of the grass which is flesh for his three daughters, and his father is dependent on him in the Vale of Taunton. The one great principle of the English law is to make business for itself. There is no other principle distinctly, certainly, and consistently maintained through all its narrow turnings. Viewed by this light, it becomes a coherent scheme, and not the monstrous maze the laity are apt to think it. Let them but once clearly perceive that its grand principle is to make business for itself at their expense, and surely they will cease to grumble. But not perceiving this quite plainly, only seeing it by halves in a confused way, the laity sometimes suffer in peace and pocket with a bad grace, and do grumble very much. Then this respectability of Mr. Bowles is brought into powerful play against them. "'Repeal this statute, my good sir,' says Mr. Kenge to a smarting client. "'Repeal it, my dear sir, never, with my consent. Alter this law, sir, and what will be the effect of your rash proceeding on a class of practitioners very worthily represented, allow me to say to you, by the opposite attorney in the case, Mr. Bowles? Sir, that class of practitioners would be swept from the face of the earth.' Now, you cannot afford, I will say, the social system cannot afford, to lose an order of men like Mr. Bowles, diligent, persevering, steady, acute in business. My dear sir, I understand your present feelings against the existing state of things, which I grant to be a little hard in your case, but I can never raise my voice for the demolition of a class of men like Mr. Vowles. The respectability of Mr. Vowles has even been cited with crushing effect before parliamentary committees, 
as in the following blue minutes of a distinguished attorney's evidence. Question number 517,869. If I understand you, these forms of practice indisputably occasion delay. Answer. Yes, some delay. Question. And great expense. Answer. Most assuredly, they cannot be gone through for nothing. Question. And unspeakable vexation? Answer. I am not prepared to say that. They have never given me any vexation. Quite the contrary. Question. But you think that their abolition would damage a class of practitioners? Answer. I have no doubt of it. Question. Can you instance any type of that class? Answer. Yes, I would unhesitatingly mention Mr. Vowles. He would be ruined. Question. Mr. Vowles is considered, in the profession, a respectable man? Answer. Which proved fatal to the inquiry for ten years. Mr. Vowles is considered in the profession a most respectable man. So, in familiar conversation, private authorities, no less disinterested, will remark that they don't know what this age is coming to, that we are plunging down precipices, that now here is something else gone, that these changes are death to people, like Vowles, a man of undoubted respectability, with a father in the Vale of Taunton, and three daughters at home. Take a few steps more in this direction, say they, and what is to become of Vols's father? Is he to perish? And of Vols's daughters? Are they to be shirt-makers or governesses? As though Mr. Vols and his relations being minor cannibal chiefs, and it being proposed to abolish cannibalism, indignant champions were, to put the case thus, make man-eating unlawful, and you starve the Volses. In a word, Mr. Vowles, with his three daughters and his father in the Vale of Taunton, is continually doing duty, like a piece of timber, to shore up some decayed foundation that has become a pitfall and a nuisance. And with a great many people, in a great many instances, the question is never one of a change from wrong to right, which is quite an extraneous consideration, but is always one of injury or advantage to that eminently respectable legion, Vowles. The Chancellor is, within these ten minutes, up for the long vacation. Mr. Vowles and his young client, and several blue bags, hastily stuffed out of all regularity of form, as the larger sort of serpents are in their first gorged state, have returned to the official den. Mr. Vowles, quiet and unmoved, as a man of so much respectability ought to be, takes off his close black gloves, as if he were skinning his hands, lifts off his tight hat, as if he were scalping himself, and sits down at his desk. The client throws his hat and gloves upon the ground, tosses them anywhere, without looking after them or caring where they go, flings himself into a chair, half sighing and half groaning, rests his aching head upon his hand, and looks the portrait of young despair. "'Again, nothing done,' says Richard. "'Nothing, nothing done!' "'Don't say nothing done, sir,' returns the placid Vols. "'That is scarcely fair, sir, scarcely fair.' "'Why, what is done?' says Richard, turning gloomily upon him. "'That may not be the whole question,' returns Vols. "'The question may branch off into what is doing, what is doing?' "'And what is doing?' asks the moody client. Vowles, sitting with his arms on the desk, 
quietly bringing the tips of his five right fingers to meet the tips of his five left fingers, and quietly separating them again, and fixedly and slowly looking at his client, replies, "'A good deal is doing, sir. We have put our shoulders to the wheel, Mr. Carstone, and the wheel is going round.' "'Yes, with Ixion on it. How am I to get through the next four or five cursed months?' exclaims the young man, rising from his chair and walking about the room. "'Mr. C.' returns Vowles, following him close with his eyes wherever he goes. "'Your spirits are hasty, and I am sorry for it on your account. Excuse me if I recommend you not to chafe so much, not to be so impetuous, not to wear yourself out so. You should have more patience, you should sustain yourself better.' "'I ought to imitate you, in fact, Mr. Vowles,' says Richard, sitting down again with an impatient laugh, and beating the devil's tattoo with his boot on the patternless carpet. "'Sir,' returns Vowles, always looking at the client as if he were making a lingering meal of him with his eyes, as well as with his professional appetite. "'Sir,' returns Vowles, with his inward manner of speech and his bloodless quietude, I should not have had the presumption to propose myself as a model for your imitation or any man's. Let me but leave the good name to my three daughters, and that is enough for me. I am not a self-seeker. But since you mention me so pointedly, I will acknowledge that I should like to impart to you a little of my—come, sir, you are disposed to call it— insensibility, and I am sure I have no objection. Say insensibility, a little of my insensibility." Mr. Vowles explains the client, somewhat abashed. I have no intention to accuse you of insensibility. I think you had, sir, without knowing it, returns the equable Vowles. Very naturally. It is my duty to attend to your interests with a cool head, and I can quite understand that to your excited feelings I may appear at such times as the present insensible. My daughters may know me better, my aged father may know me better, but they have known me much longer than you have, and the confiding eye of affection is not the distrustful eye of business. Not that I complain, sir, of the eye of business being distrustful, quite the contrary and attending to your interests i wish to have all possible checks upon me it is right that i should have them i court inquiry but your interests demand that i should be cool and methodical mr carstone and i cannot be otherwise no sir not even to please you mr vowles after glancing at the official cat who is patiently watching a mouse's hole fixes his charmed gaze again on his young client and proceeds in his buttoned-up half-audible voice, as if there were an unclean spirit in him that will neither come out nor speak out. "'What are you to do, sir?' you inquire, during the vacation. "'I should hope you gentlemen of the army may find many means of amusing yourselves, if you give your minds to it. If you had asked me what I was to do during the vacation, I could have answered you more readily. I am to attend to your interests.' I am to be found here day by day attending to your interests. 
That is my duty, Mr. C., and term, time, or vacation makes no difference to me. If you wish to consult me as to your interests, you will find me here at all times alike. Other professional men go out of town. I don't. Not that I blame them for going. I merely say I don't go. This desk is your rock, sir. Mr. Vowles gives it a rap, and it sounds as hollow as a coffin. Not to Richard, though. There is encouragement in the sound to him. Perhaps Mr. Vowles knows there is. "'I am perfectly aware, Mr. Vowles,' says Richard, more familiarly and good-humouredly, "'that you are the most reliable fellow in the world, and that to have to do with you is to have to do with a man of business who is not to be hoodwinked. But put yourself in my case.' dragging on this dislocated life, sinking deeper and deeper into difficulty every day, continually hoping and continually disappointed, conscious of change upon change for the worse in myself, and of no change for the better in anything else. And you will find it a dark-looking case sometimes, as I do. "'You know,' says Mr. Vowles, "'that I never give hopes, sir. I told you from the first, Mr. C., that I never give hopes, particularly in a case like this, where the greater part of the costs comes out of the estate. I should not be considerate of my good name if I gave hopes. It might seem as if costs were my object. Still, when you say there is no change for the better, I must, as a bare matter of fact, deny that. I, returns Richard, brightening, but how do you make it out?' "'Mr. Carstone, you are represented by—' "'You said just now, a rock.' "'Yes, sir,' says Mr. Vowles, gently shaking his head, and rapping the hollow desk, with a sound as if ashes were falling on ashes, and dust on dust. "'A rock. That's something. You are separately represented, and no longer hidden and lost in the interests of others. That's something.' The suit does not sleep. We wake it up. We air it. We walk it about. That's something. It's not all Jarndyce. In fact, as well as in name, that's something. Nobody has it all his own way now, sir. And that's something. Surely. Richard, his face flushing, suddenly strikes the desk with his clenched hand. Mr. Vowles. If any man had told me when I first went to John Jarndyce's house that he was anything but the disinterested friend he seemed, that he was what he has gradually turned out to be, I could have found no word strong enough to repel the slander. I could not have defended him too ardently. So little did I know of the world. Whereas now I do declare to you that he becomes to me the embodiment of the suit, that in place of its being an abstraction it is John Jarndyce— that the more I suffer, the more indignant I am with him, that every new delay and every new disappointment is only a new injury from John Jarndyce's hand. "'No, no,' says Vowles. "'Don't say so. We ought to have patience, all of us. Besides, I never disparage, sir. I never disparage.' "'Mr. Vowles,' returns the angry client, you know as well as I that he would have strangled a suit if he could. He was not active in it, Mr. Vowles admits with an appearance of reluctance. He certainly was not active in it. 
But, however, but, however, he might have had amiable intentions. Who can read the heart, Mr. C? You can, returns Richard. I, Mr. C. Well enough to know what his intentions were. Are or are not our interests conflicting? Tell me that, says Richard, accompanying his last three words with three raps on his rock of trust. Mr. C., returns Voles, immovable in attitude and never winking his hungry eyes. I should be wanting in my duty as your professional adviser. I should be departing from my fidelity to your interests, if I represented those interests as identical with the interests of Mr. Jarndyce. They are no such thing, sir. I never impute motives. I both have and am a father, and I never impute motives. But I must not shrink from a professional duty, even if it sows dissensions in families. I understand you to be now consulting me professionally as to your interests. You are so. I reply, then, they are not identical with those of Mr. Jarndyce. "'Of course they are not,' cries Richard. "'You found that out long ago.' "'Mr. C.' returns Voles. "'I wish to say no more of any third party than is necessary. I wish to leave my good name unsullied, together with any little property of which I may become possessed through industry and perseverance, to my daughters Emma, Jane, and Caroline. I also desire to live in amity with my professional brethren.' when mr skimpole did me the honour sir i will not say the very high honour for i never stoop to flattery of bringing us together in this room i mentioned to you that i could offer no opinion or advice as to your interests while those interests were entrusted to another member of the profession and i spoke in such terms as i was bound to speak of kenge and carboy's office which stands high you sir thought fit to withdraw your interests from that keeping nevertheless and to offer them to me you brought them with clean hands, sir, and I accepted them with clean hands. Those interests are now paramount in this office. My digestive functions, as you may have heard me mention, are not in a good state, and rest might improve them, but I shall not rest, sir, while I am your representative. Whenever you want me, you will find me here. Summon me anywhere, and I will come. During the long vacation, sir, I shall devote my leisure to studying your interests more and more closely, and to making arrangements for moving heaven and earth, including, of course, the Chancellor, after Michaelmas term, and when I ultimately congratulate you, sir, says Mr. Vowles, with the severity of a determined man, when I ultimately congratulate you, sir, with all my heart on your accession to fortune, which, but that I never give hopes, I might say something further about, you will owe me nothing beyond whatever little balance may be then outstanding of the costs as between solicitor and client, not included in the taxed costs allowed out of the estate. I pretend no claim upon you, Mr. C., but for the zealous and active discharge, not the languid and routine discharge, sir, that much credit I stipulate for, of my professional duty, my duty prosperously ended, all between us is ended. Bowles finally adds, by way of rider to this declaration of his principles, that as Mr. Carstone is about to rejoin his regiment, perhaps Mr. C. will favour him with an order on his agent for twenty pounds on account. "'For there have been many little consultations and attendances of late, sir,' observed Vowles, turning over the leaves of his diary. "'And these things mount up, and I don't profess to be a man of capital. 
when we first entered on our present relations i stated to you openly it is a principle of mine that there never can be too much openness between solicitor and client that i was not a man of capital and that if capital was your object you had better leave your papers in kenge's office no mr c you will find none of the advantages or disadvantages of capital here sir this Bowles gives the desk one hollow blow again is your rock it pretends to be nothing more the client with his dejection insensibly relieved and his vague hopes rekindled takes pen and ink and writes the draft not without perplexed consideration and calculation of the date it may bear implying scant effects in the agent's hands all the while Vowles, buttoned up in body and mind looks at him attentively all the while Vowles's official cat watches the mouse's hole lastly the client shaking hands beseeches mr Vowles, for heaven's sake and earth's sake to do his utmost to pull him through the court of chancery mr Vowles, who never gives hopes lays his palm upon the client's shoulder and answers with a smile always here sir personally or by letter you will always find me here sir with my shoulder to the wheel thus they part and Vowles, left alone, employs himself in carrying sundry little matters out of his diary into his draft bill-book, for the ultimate behoof of his three daughters. So might an industrious fox or bear make up his account of chickens or stray travellers with an eye to his cubs, not to disparage by that word the three raw-visaged, lank, and buttoned-up maidens who dwell with the parent Vowles in an earthy cottage situated in a damp garden at Kennington richard emerging from the heavy shade of simon's inn into the sunshine of chancery lane for there happens to be sunshine there to-day walks thoughtfully on and turns into lincoln's inn and passes under the shadow of the lincoln's inn trees on many such loungers have the speckled shadows of those trees often fallen on the like bent head the bitten nail the lowering eye the lingering step the purposeless and dreamy air the good consuming and consumed, the life turned sour. This lounger is not shabby yet, but that may come. Chancery, which knows no wisdom but in precedent, is very rich in such precedents, and why should one be different from ten thousand? Yet the time is so short, since his depreciation began, that as he saunters away, reluctant to leave the spot for some long months together, though he hates it, Richard himself may feel his own case as if it were a startling one. While his heart is heavy with corroding care, suspense, distrust, and doubt, it may have room for some sorrowful wonder when he recalls how different his first visit there, how different he, how different all the colours of his mind. But injustice breeds injustice. The fighting with shadows and being defeated by them necessitates the setting up of substances to combat. From the impalpable suit which no man alive can understand, the time for that being long gone by, it has become a gloomy relief to turn to the palpable figure of the friend who would have saved him from this ruin, and make him his enemy. Richard has told Vowles the truth. Is he in a hardened or a softened mood? He still lays his injuries equally at that door. He was thwarted in that quarter of a set purpose, and that purpose could only originate in the one subject that is resolving his existence into itself. Besides, it is a justification to him in his own eyes to have an embodied antagonist and oppressor. 
Is Richard a monster in all this? Or would Chancery be found rich in such precedents, too, if they could be got for citation from the recording angel? Two pairs of eyes, not unused to such people, look after him, as biting his nails and brooding, he crosses the square and is swallowed up by the shadow of the southern gateway. Mr. Guppy and Mr. Weevil are the possessors of those eyes, and they have been leaning in conversation against the low stone parapet under the trees. He passes close by them, seeing nothing but the ground. "'William,' says Mr. Weevil, adjusting his whiskers, "'there's combustion going on there. It's not a case of spontaneous, but it's smouldering combustion it is.' "'Ah,' oh, says Mr. Guppy, "'he wouldn't keep out of Jarndyce, and I suppose he's overhead and he is in debt. I never knew much of him. He was as high as the monument when he was on trial at our place. A good riddance to me.' whether as clerk or client. Well, Tony, that, as I was mentioning, is what they're up to. Mr. Guppy, refolding his arms, resettles himself against the parapet, as resuming a conversation of interest. "'They are still up to it, sir,' says Mr. Guppy. "'Still taking stock, still examining papers, still going over the heaps and heaps of rubbish. At this rate they'll be at it these seven years.' "'And Small is helping?' "'Small left us at a week's notice. "'Told Kenge his grandfather's business was too much for the old gentleman, "'and he could better himself by undertaking it. "'There had been a coolness between myself and Small "'on account of his being so close. "'But he said you and I began it, "'and as he had me there, for we did, "'I put our acquaintance on the old footing. "'That's how I come to know what they're up to.' "'You haven't looked in at all?' "'Tony,' says Mr. Guppy, a little disconcerted, "'to be unreserved with you, I don't greatly relish the house, except in your company, and therefore I have not, and therefore I propose this little appointment for our fetching away your things. There goes the hour by the clock, Tony.' Mr. Guppy becomes mysteriously and tenderly eloquent. "'It is necessary that I should impress upon your mind once more that circumstances over which I have no control have made a melancholy alteration in my most cherished plans, and in that unrequited image which I formerly mentioned to you as a friend. That image is shattered, and that idol is laid low.' My only wish now, in connection with the objects which I had an idea of carrying out in the court with your aid as a friend, is to let them alone, and bury them in oblivion. Do you think it possible? Do you think it at all likely? I'll put it to you, Tony, as a friend. From your knowledge of that capricious and deep old character who fell a prey to the spontaneous element, do you, Tony, think it at all likely that on second thoughts he put those letters away anywhere after you saw him alive and that they were not destroyed that night mr weevil reflects for some time shakes his head decidedly thinks not tony says mr guppy as they walk towards the court once again understand me as a friend without entering into further explanations I may repeat that the idol is down. I have no purpose to serve now but burial in oblivion. To that I have pledged myself. I owe it to myself, and I owe it to the shattered image, 
as also to the circumstances over which I have no control. If you was to express to me, by a gesture, by a wink, that you saw lying anywhere in your late lodgings, any papers that so much as looked like the papers in question, I would pitch them into the fire, sir, on my own responsibility. Mr. Weevil nods. Mr. Guppy, much elevated in his own opinion by having delivered these observations, with an air in part forensic and in part romantic, this gentleman having a passion for conducting anything in the form of an examination, or delivering anything in the form of a summing up or a speech, accompanies his friend with dignity to the court. Never, since it has been a court, has it had such a fortunatus purse of gossip, as in the proceedings at the rag-and-bottle shop. Regularly every morning at eight is the elder Mr. Smallweed brought down to the corner and carried in, accompanied by Mrs. Smallweed, Judy, and Bart, and regularly, all day, do they all remain there until nine at night, solaced by gypsy dinners, not abundant in quantity, from the cook's shop, rummaging and searching, digging, delving, and diving among the treasures of the late lamented. What those treasures are they keep so secret that the court is maddened. In its delirium it imagines guineas pouring out of teapots, crown pieces overflowing punch-bowls, old chairs and mattresses stuffed with Bank of England notes. It possesses itself of the sixpenny history, with highly coloured folding frontispiece, of Mr. Daniel Dancer and his sister, and also of Mr. Elwes of Suffolk and transfers all the facts from those authentic narratives to Mr. Crook. Twice, when the dustman is called in to carry off a cartload of old paper, ashes, and broken bottles, the whole court assembles and pries into the baskets as they come forth. Many times the two gentlemen who write with the ravenous little pens on the tissue paper are seen prowling in the neighbourhood, shy of each other, their late partnership being dissolved. The Sol skilfully carries a vein of the prevailing interest through the harmonic nights. Little Swills, in what are professionally known as patter, allusions to the subject, is received with loud applause, and the same vocalist gags in the regular business like a man inspired. Even Miss M. Melvilleson, in the revived Caledonian melody of We're a Nodding, points the sentiment that the dogs love brew, whatever the nature of that refreshment may be with such archness, and such a turn of the head towards next door, that she is immediately understood to mean Mr. Smallweed loves to find money, and is nightly honoured with a double encore. For all this the court discovers nothing, and as Mrs. Piper and Miss Perkins now communicate to the late lodger, whose appearance is the signal for a general rally, it is in one continual ferment to discover everything and more. Mr. Weevil and Mr. Guppy, with every eye in the court's head upon them, knock at the closed door of the late lamented's house in a high state of popularity. But, being contrary to the court's expectation admitted, they immediately become unpopular, and are considered to mean no good. The shutters are more or less closed all over the house, and the ground-floor is sufficiently dark to require candles. Introduced into the back-shop by Mr. Smallweed the younger, they, fresh from the sunlight, can at first see nothing save darkness and shadows, but they gradually discern the elder Mr. Smallweed, seated in his chair, upon the brink of a well or grave of waste paper, the virtuous Judy groping therein like a female sexton, and Mrs. Smallweed, on the level ground in the vicinity, snowed up in a heap of paper fragments, print, and manuscript, 
which would appear to be the accumulated compliments that had been sent flying at her in the course of the day. The whole party, small included, are blackened with dust and dirt, and present a fiendish appearance, not relieved by the general aspect of the room. There is more litter and lumber in it than of old, and is dirtier, if possible. Likewise, it is ghostly, with traces of its dead inhabitant, and even with his chalked writing on the wall. On the entrance of visitors, Mr. Smallweed and Judy simultaneously fold their arms, and stop in their researches. Ah! croaks the old gentleman. "'How de do, gentlemen? How de do? Come to fetch your property, Mr. Weevil. That's well, that's well. <laughs> we should have been forced to sell you up, sir, to pay your warehouse room, if you had left it here much longer. You feel quite at home here again, I dare say. <laughs> glad to see you, glad to see you.' Mr. Weevil, thanking him, casts an eye about. Mr. Guppy's eye follows Mr. Weevil's eye. Mr. Weevil's eye comes back without any new intelligence in it. Mr. Guppy's eye comes back and meets Mr. Smallweed's eye. That engaging old gentleman is still murmuring like some wound-up instrument running down. How de do, sir? How de how and young young? And then, having run down, he lapses into grinning silence as Mr. Guppy starts at seeing Mr. Tulkinghorn standing in the darkness opposite, with his hands behind him. "'Gentlemen, so kind as to act as my solicitor,' says Grandfather Smallweed. "'I am not the sort of client for a gentleman of such note, but he is so good.' Mr. Guppy, slightly nudging his friend to take another look, makes a shuffling bow to Mr. Tulkinghorn. Who returns it with an easy nod. Mr. Tulkinghorn is looking on, as if he had nothing else to do, and were rather amused by the novelty. "'A good deal of property here, sir, I should say,' Mr. Guppy observes to Mr. Smallweed. Uh, "'Principally rags and rubbish, my dear friend, rags and rubbish. Me and Bart and my granddaughter Judy are endeavouring to make out an inventory of what's worth anything to sell. <laughs> but we haven't come to match as yet. We haven't come to—' Mr. Smallweed has run down again while Mr. Weevil's eye, attended by Mr. Guppy's eye, has again gone round the room and come back. "'Well, sir,' says Mr. Weevil, "'we won't intrude any longer, if you'll allow us to go upstairs.' "'Anywhere, my dear sir, anywhere. You're at home. Make yourself so, pray.' As they go upstairs, Mr. Guppy lifts his eyebrows inquiringly, and looks at Tony. Tony shakes his head. They find the old room very dull and dismal, with the ashes of the fire that was burning on that memorable night, yet in the discoloured grate. They have a great disinclination to touch any object, and carefully blow the dust from it first. Nor are they desirous to prolong their visit, packing the few movables with all possible speed, and never speaking above a whisper. "'Look here,' says Tony, recoiling. "'Here's that horrible cat coming in.' Mr. Guppy retreats behind a chair. "'Small told me of her. She went leaping and bounding and tearing about that night like a dragon, 
and got out on the housetop and roamed about up there for a fortnight and then came tumbling down the chimney very thin did you ever see such a brute looks as if she knew all about it don't she almost looks as if she was crook shoo shoo get out you goblin lady jane in the doorway with her tiger snarl from ear to ear and a club of a tail shows no intention of obeying but mr tulkinghorn stumbling over her she spits at his rusty legs and swearing wrathfully takes her arched back upstairs possibly to roam the housetops again and return by the chimney mr guppy says mr tulkinghorn could i have a word with you Mr. Guppy is engaged in collecting the Galaxy Gallery of British Beauty from the wall, and depositing those works of art in their old ignoble bandbox. "'Sir,' he returns, reddening, "'I wish to act with courtesy towards every member of the profession, and especially, I'm sure, towards a member of it so well known as yourself. I will truly add, sir, so distinguished as yourself. <laughs> Still, Mr. Tulkinghorn, sir, I must stipulate, that if you have any word with me, that word is spoken in the presence of my friend. No, indeed, says Mr. Tulkinghorn. Yes, sir. My reasons are not of a personal nature at all, but they are amply sufficient for myself. No doubt, no doubt. Mr. Tulkinghorn is as imperturbable as the hearthstone to which he has quietly walked. The matter is not of that consequence that I need put you to the trouble of making any conditions, Mr. Guppy. He pauses here to smile, and his smile is as dull and rusty as his pantaloons. You are to be congratulated, Mr. Guppy. You are a fortunate young man, sir. Pretty well so, Mr. Tulkinghorn. I, I don't complain. Complain? High friends? free admission to great houses and access to elegant ladies why mr guppy there are people in london who would give their ears to be you mr guppy looking as if he would give his own reddening and still reddening ears to be one of those people at present instead of himself replies sir if i attend to my profession and do what is right by kenge and carboy my friends and acquaintances are of no consequence to them nor to any member of the profession not excepting mr tulkinghorn of the fields i am not under any obligation to explain myself further and with all respect for you sir and without offence i repeat without offence no oh, certainly i don't intend to do it quite so says Mr. Tulkinghorn, with a calm nod. "'Very good. I see by these portraits that you take a strong interest in the fashionable great, sir.' He addresses this to the astounded Tony, who admits the soft impeachment. "'A virtue in which few Englishmen are deficient,' observes Mr. Tulkinghorn. He has been standing on the hearthstone with his back to the smoked chimney-piece, and now turns round with his glasses to his eyes. "'Who is this?' "'Lady Dedlock.' "'Ha! Huh. A very good likeness in its way, but it wants force of character. "'Good day to you, gentlemen. Good day.' When he has walked out, Mr. Guppy, in a great perspiration, nerves himself to the hasty completion of the taking down of the Galaxy Gallery, concluding with Lady Dedlock. "'Tony!' 
he says hurriedly to his astonished companion, "'let us be quick in putting the things together and in getting out of this place. It were in vain longer to conceal from you, Tony, that between myself and one of the members of a swan-like aristocracy whom I now hold in my hand, there has been undivulged communication and association.' the time might have been when i might have revealed it to you it never will be more it is due alike to the oath i have taken alike to the shattered idol and alike to circumstances over which i have no control that the whole should be buried in oblivion i charge you as a friend by the interests you have ever testified in the fashionable intelligence and by any little advances with which i may have been able to accommodate you so to bury it without a word of inquiry this charge Mr. Guppy delivers in a state little short of forensic lunacy, while his friend shows a dazed mind in his whole head of hair and even in his cultivated whiskers. End of chapter 39